We are live. Thank you everybody for tuning in and for catching this on a replay. Super special episode, special episode tonight. We've got Potent Potniks with us and he is going to give us a special presentation. Uh, something that I know I'm definitely going to benefit from. I've got my writing utensil right here. Hopefully you guys do too. Uh, but we'll go ahead and get into that. Potent Potics, please say hello to everybody. Hey everybody, how's it going tonight? Hope you guys are having a good time. Um, we just finished getting this wiggled around. Oh, wrong button. There we go. Okay. All right, we're diving into the land of screen sharing tonight, chat. So let's see if I hit the right button and the uh, broadcast continues. Hey, Soul Shine Growing, how you doing tonight, man? Got Ian comfortably numb. All the seeds. Everybody's coming in. Everybody's popping in. Sunny Chiba. All right. Good to see you guys. Thanks for joining us again. All right. So, okay. We will go ahead and if you just want to go full screen on that, I'll bring it up for you. Add it to the stream and I'll give you the full screen. There we go. All right, Steve, take it away. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, tonight we're going to talk about kind of an introduction to aquaponic cannabis production. And um, uh, it's going to be not just about aquaponics. We're going to talk a lot about soil and how you can utilize any type of aquatic biome um, in terms of um, fish culture, even a local pond to improve the overall production of your even your soil plants. Um, you know, this isn't uh, strictly aquaponics only. So um, you can see here, um, we even get lots of mushrooms. We do uh, IMO applications in our living soil uh, upper portions of our dual root zones. And we get, you know, wonderful, uh, all different types of different mushrooms that pop up. We have a really good color and secondary uh, production of our cannabis plants, uh, huge root masses, which we're going to talk about. Uh, and um, all from the, the waste that comes off the fish, plus a little bit of tweaking on top of that. All right. So. What is aquaponics? Uh, aquaponics is utilizing fish and fish waste or sometimes uh, other aquatic um, animals uh, such as um, invertebrates, shrimp, uh, crayfish, those types of things uh, to fertilize uh, recirculating hydroponic systems. Um, I really prefer to, you know, traditionally people teach them as aquaculture and hydroponics. I think that's kind of a wrong way to, to think about it. It's much more like living aquatic soil. Uh, especially when you look at this microbiome, microbiological diversity of the soil uh, and the water, uh, it's very similar, right? You have these huge food webs with many different species of microbes that are uh, performing lots of different chains of mineralization and con mineral conversion in order to get the, the proper stuff for your plants. Um, you know, traditionally in aquaponics, we rely much more on nitrates for nitrogen, which we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the chemistry section. Um, and, and some of the other things you can see here, this is one of the early test bed greenhouses we had at the aquaponic source where we did a lot of our first early aquaponic um, uh, testing with cannabis. Uh, you can see the fish were underneath the floor here. Um, there's an extra fuel tank here that we were passing over. So ignore that. But um, this was part of the one of the designs we utilized where we put the fish tanks in the floor to get the maximum climate control uh, of the greenhouses. And this allowed us to uh, use up to 60% uh, less fuel over the course of the winter. We ran a whole 60 by 30 by 18 foot greenhouse with only uh, uh, 
it's like 89 pounds of propane or it's less than 100 pounds of propane, whatever it was. Um, uh, but it was very, very, very efficient because we had this huge thermal mass. We were just running a closed loop water heater uh, that that ran uh, recirculating glycol through the bottom of the the tank there and it heated the whole greenhouse so we, it was much much more efficient and um, especially if you're in cold climates it really can be a great way uh, when you're trying to scale up to really save on climate control costs on larger facilities um, also um, uh, you get much faster growth uh, than traditional other other methods uh, as well as better flavor and and uh, other things one second to take the bone away from my dog i do apologize <laughs> That's quite all right. Uh, a lot of times in the background, you'll hear my dog barking. So I'm pretty quick to the mute button when I can. But uh, yes, we understand and we love our little friends. <laughs> all of this. And we no have, worries. Uh, we have four rascals. So we have uh, two wolf dogs and two pitties. So they're they're quite the quite the bunch. Um, anyways, uh, so this gives us a, a, quite a bit of a market edge, especially in cold climates. Aquaponics really excels Canada. Uh, northern part of the United States uh, because of the cheaper climate costs through the winter uh, and the accelerated growth rates it really does make a big difference at a commercial scale. So how does aquaponics work? Well, the fish uh, produce waste both in the form of respiration, which is high in ammonia, as well as their, their waste in the form of, you know, when they go to the bathroom and all that stuff. We generally take that, separate that out on larger scale operations and mineralize it or on small scale stuff. Um, just directly into the media bed um, where we apply uh, things like um, liquid IMO uh, or lactobacillus uh, we, you know, with minor hybridization of, of KNF to really hyper-mineralize those beds and make sure they stay clean. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the microbe section about how important it is, especially lactobacillus, I think you're going to see being part of standard food safety SOPs here in the long term for aquaponics because um, some of the early studies that we've we've actually treated multiple facilities, lettuce facilities for uh, non-human pathogenic E. coli, um, where it, it's a false positive and a water test um, at utilizing lactobacillus without modifying the system at all after, you know, 14 days, uh, it was undetectable. So we, we found really good applications for pathogen elimination um, in uh, in aquatics uh, for I think you're going to see that, you know, translate into uh, legislation here in, in two to five years for food safety. And it's it's super cheap too, you know. It's the cost of milk. It's not really a, a, an expensive input for people to make. Um, but anyways, so you, you traditionally on smaller beds, um, anything under fifty square feet, you can get away with using a bell siphon. Where um, uh, does anyone know who invented the bell siphon? Um, the bell siphon was originally invented by Pythagoras. Um, he invented something called the greed cup or Pythagorean cup which was a, a, like a wine glass. And if you filled it up too much, it would drain out through the stem. It had a bell siphon built into the stem of the, the cup and it would automatically drain the whole thing out through the stem and I pour it either on you or back into the bowl. It's kind of like a prank cup for, for drunks. Um, but uh, that's where this design actually comes from, which is really funny that we use it to grow weed now um, <laughs> uh, or vegetables. Um, but that's where the design originally came from. But how it works is when the water gets to the top of this, when the bell siphon is over top of this standpipe, it creates a vacuum. Uh, when the water starts to go down, it creates a plug, which then starts to drain the whole water level down until it hits the opening here in the bell siphon uh, at the very bottom. That sucks in air, which breaks the siphon and starts the whole process again. These mechanical siphons will not fail unless the, 
the input water uh, volume and flow rate changes significantly. So they're incredibly reliable, much more reliable than a, than a timer. Um, these don't fail uh, unless they get tremendously clogged, which means you aren't doing regular maintenance uh, and are very good. But they only are good for, for grow beds under about 48 to 50 square feet. Uh, when you get bigger than that, you want to go to something like a loop siphon. Now, loop siphons, you can do, you know, you know, a couple hundred square feet if you want to uh, on a single loop siphon, even multiple grow beds uh, plumb to a single uh, system. If you want to check that out over on AP Meds, uh, Marty uh, has a really good um, video on a couple of different setups he has with multiple uh, grow beds on a single U siphon. So um, uh, these are, are very simple to use. You can even utilize uh, simple, um, you know, soft piping to make a U siphon. And these work similarly to bell siphons. When the water gets to the peak of the U, uh, it creates a, a plug. This then causes a siphon, which then drains down. So the peak of this U is where the highest flood value is in your grow bed. And this is how uh, another way to mechanically uh, do uh, flood and drain beds without having to rely on a timer. Uh, I think every, all of us that have grown long term have, have had timers fail long before other parts of their stuff. So um, it's a way to kind of get away from that. That's, you know, kind of much more reliable and, and much more scalable. Um, you can also adapt uh, lettuce raft beds to that as well. Um, you can also adjust flow rates. If you choke it off, you can slow down um, um, how fast it, it needs to be to, to fully drain. So uh, it's easier to balance for larger beds as well. And a little bit easier maintenance. So it just depends on, on the type of setup that you're doing. Um, so why would you use aquaponics? So aquaponics on average uses 18% of water compared to drain to waste uh, and a lot of other um, traditional type of grow methods in soil. Um, we have uh, traditionally 12 to 20% of the supplemental nutrients depending on cultivar. Obviously some cultivars really wanna be fed heavy. Um, so we have to give them a little bit more supplementation in terms of microbes, uh, ferments, and um, you know sometimes minerals, organic mineral salts. Um, when needed, things like langmanite or calcium carbonate or, um, you know, uh, other things that, that need to be added occasionally here and there. Um, sodium molybdenate would be another one um, that we use quite a bit, uh, especially, you know, if you're working with higher nitrates. Uh, if you're working with nitrate-based stuff or having nitrates found in your soil, uh, a little bit of extra molybdenum really helps the plants um, kind of compensate for that. Additional revenue streams in the form of fish, uh, you know, you can sell those. Uh, if you are doing this at a bigger scale, uh, you are better off reselling um, fish that you can sell through the pet trade. Um, import export laws uh, or bill uh, licenses are much cheaper uh, than uh, trying to go through the food safety stuff. And right now, unless you're doing hemp, um, you cannot get a meat processing license. You can't kill the fish on property on a cannabis facility because they're federally inspected for their meat inspectors and all that stuff. So you can't do meat and dairy. Um, with aquaponics currently, which we do do uh, vegan cheese with, um, you know, bean-based uh, uh, lactobacillus. So that's always fun, but you can't do uh, any real milk uh, and you can't do fish. Um, you know, you have to sell them live or fresh frozen on, uh, on ice. Um, you know, it's the only way we can legally sell them. That's why it's much better to do koi or um, tropical fish and things like that. So improved secondary metabolite expressions. Uh, again, we're seeing huge increases in terpenes, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later on. We'll have huge increases in um, 
uh, you know, uh, certain cannabinoids as well, especially when we have certain uh, grow methods applied with the aquaponics. And then also, um, you know, you, you can't cheat in aquaponics. So if I cheat in aquaponics, um, you're going to have, you know, it, it kind of collapses the whole system. If I try to cheat and spray something that's not organic and not gentle to the, the system and everything else, it immediately kills the fish and immediately collapses the microbes and collapses the whole system, right? So um, it, you kind of, you know, it kind of proves that you, there's no way that you you were uh, you know cutting corners. And that's, you know, we often find tree frogs and stuff like that in Oklahoma and a couple of different crows that we have to escort out. Uh, we don't like them in there, but occasionally they do find their way through the ventilation and things like that uh, here and there. Um, but, uh, you know, again, if you're finding th frogs in your grow and stuff like that, it means you're not spraying anything that's, um, you know, particularly gnarly that you wouldn't want to smoke, uh, although they do need an escort out. <laughs> Much better for the outdoor plants, you know. Um, so increased profits, you have, uh, again, uh, additional fish, uh, fish waste. Uh, a lot of times, too, when you're done mineralization, many farms now are dehydrating the fish waste into these, um, it looks almost like a fish uh, Dorito, or <laughs> for lack of a better term, but it's consolidated dried fish waste, and that's incredibly stable and very high in nutrients and a really good soil amendment for your living soil plants. Uh, and, uh, you know, another way to kind of additionally supplement it. It's also a great way to help increase biodiversity in your soil systems. About 76% of the microbes in an aquaponic system will survive at least long enough to have quite a bit of beneficial mineralization in your soil um, based on a, quite a few different studies now that have been done through the Aquaponics Association and some of the, the different studies that they've done through others. And, and we'll get into that as well with a couple a name of a couple of the papers as well. Um, so faster vegetative growth, we get up to double the speed of growth of, of soil. Um, you know, it's another thing that's really nice, especially if you're doing moms and clone operations, it really is kind of the best situation for aquaponics. Uh, if you're doing nurseries and things like that, that really is where aquaponics truly excels. You know, we're averaging three, four inches of growth a day, sometimes, you, you know, well beyond that with a you know good node spacing um, with certain cultivars. So uh, if you really have it dialed in, it, it screams. Um, much higher terpenes uh, mean you know better price per pound. Again, we're seeing huge increases in terpenes and expressions uh, on average 35% or more uh, with aquaponic dual root zone method methodology, and we'll get into why that why that works a, a little bit later on. Um, uh, and then some cases as much as 300%. So we've had strains go from like 1.2, 1.4% all the way up to you know threes. Uh, in terms of total percentages uh, and you know, after switching them and again, side by side. So um, it really is kind of a, a, a huge, huge thing, especially for certain expressions that you're trying to look for. Uh, so it's much more sustainable. Uh, you know, if you're going after a license in a, in a certain area uh, and you come in and there's you versus a hundred other people all applying for a license and they're only going to grant 12 and you're come in there and you're just going to say, Hey, not only are we going to grow the same amount of cannabis, but we're also going to have, all these fish and we're going to donate, you know, a 50 to hundred percent of the fish to the local food bank. You're going to get a license every time uh, over somebody else. And you're going to be able to give cannabis a better brand, right? So cannabis often gets looked down on, especially by people that haven't had the experiences, the positive experiences with the plant that a lot of us have had. It's a way for us to kind of break those boundaries and really interact with portions of the community that would normally be turned off by us. I know um, we actually have some pictures later on, of a church group that's a, a, a church ranch that they take in people that 
that kind of need a little bit of help and stuff like that. And we donated a whole bunch of tilapia to them. And um, it not only is it good for, for the community, but it's also good for, you know, just showing that cannabis can be much more than just, hey, let's all smoke cannabis. Let's all, you know, use this wonderful plant to heal people. But it also can be a means to finance food. That's why we're, you know, it's spreading so much in Southern Africa right now. I'm working with three different projects in South Africa and, uh, and one in Zimbabwe right now uh, because we can build these huge facilities and, and produce a ton of food for the local community at the same time, which builds a lot of goodwill uh, out there. And they need a lot more protein production. They need this type of stuff. And this is a way that they can kind of bankroll that food production in a, in a separate way. So uh, it's definitely a, a way that we can work together. And then you're also seeing lots of products like um, uh, fish shit and, uh, you know, other uh, fish based um, uh, fish waste based uh, inputs. Uh, becoming much more popular, people are, are starting to see the difference. And, you know, the, the more diverse your microbes, the better production you, you're going to get. Uh, so this was a study that was done by the Aquaponics Association or partially funded by the Aquaponics Association. Um, uh, I don't know if it was funded, but it was participated in whoever you, however it is, but uh, they were involved. Um, aquaponic systems utilize the soil food web to grow healthy crops. This was part of uh, uh, and blind flipping, which was actually on my show on Monday, if you want to check that out over on the Growing with Fishes podcast. Um, and this was part of the soil versus soilless organic debate uh, with the USDA. It actually went to the courts uh, and, you know, they do this every few years. Um, but they actually proved that um, uh, on average, aquaponic systems average 168 percent more um, microbial species than most soil samples taken at soil farms. So. Um, that they wanted to, to put forth for sampling. So um, even when we were, you know, our, the people that were against the, the study, you know, donated that stuff, it, it you know, it still was 168% more biodiverse, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, but it explains why the plants get more um, uh, terpene expression is because they have a lot more non-pathogenic microbes to the root system, the same way that living soil crushes things like cocoa and hydro in terms of total terpenes is because you have a lot more microbes. You know, anyone, you guys have had tons of wonderful speakers on this channel talking about living soil, how important it is to have that, that whole food web. Well, you can have that entire wonderful soil food web that so many of your other guests have spoken on this channel uh, uh, talked about, um, but then also on top of that have the aquatic uh, microbiome and the aquatic soil food web uh, that, you know, breaks down minerals completely. And what was really interesting is, is that when I was working with Ouroboros back in California, um, they came, uh, NASA was doing a study where they were DNA sampling a whole bunch of different aquaponics farms and um, a whole bunch of other things to try and find um, what microbes were common for mineralization of different um, minerals in order to, you know, hey, possibly use for going off world and all that stuff. So um, we had our, our farm sampled. What they found was is that none of the microbe samples were identical at all. Uh, there was very little overlap with mineralization microbes and that um, they were just shocked by the amount of diversity in terms of uh, mineralization processes. So that was really an interesting study and kind of eye-opening where it was, you know, it, it, it also makes sense, though, too, if you think about how isolated a lot of freshwater microbiomes are, um, they're completely isolated and different all over the world. They don't get a lot of overlap contamination except through birds. So it would make sense that those microbes evolved independently from mineralization. So it's why you have these huge, immense amounts of biodiversity with the aquatic IMOs, 
um, and uh, aquatic indigenous microorganisms that that are great for mineralizing things like that in um, uh, aquaponic systems. And you can collect those and inoculate them uh, in similar manners to to doing soil. It's slightly different uh, for collection, but um, there's a whole uh, whole bunch of different ways that I've done that I've posted in a, a couple of different groups, uh, KNF group and a couple of others that um, maybe we'll do in a different presentation. But um, uh, uh, it really is hyper regional specific, and that really was kind of I think the most eye opening thing was that the biodiversity of it and how much difference there was from location to location. The only two places that even had any amount of overlap was a koi farm that was directly across the street from an aquaponics farm um, that they had sampled. They were the only two places, and they were you know physically very close to each other, so that would make a lot of sense. So I, I thought that was one of the most eye opening things about uh, that that whole study. So um, aquaponics versus living soil. So aquaponics uh, has high terpene levels, so does living soil. I think these are kind of the most comparable of all grow methods um, in terms of uh, chemovar expression, um, biodiversity, uh, microbiological micro diversity, and, and just overall plant health and vigor. Uh, I think really these really are the two most similar ways to grow uh, out there. I really think it really is uh, kind of selling it short to call it hydroponics. Um, and then, um, so you have faster growth in aquaponics compared to soil. You have slightly higher uh, learning curve with aquaponics. Obviously, you have uh, two things to manage instead of one uh, and three if you count the fish. Uh, fewer pest control options with aquaponics because, um, you know, we, we have to account for the fish and their toxicity as well. Although it's not as bad, especially now that there's so many, the white lists have kind of limited everything so much. There it really isn't a whole lot left on the list that's, that's too fish toxic. There are a few exceptions, but um, most states now have white lists. And I think that that's a direction that we've been pushing the aquaponics industry towards is, hey, look, get ahead of regulation, get ahead of where the cannabis industry has been put in a lot of these states, learn from the cannabis industry uh, and um, try and use that as a template for you know putting forth white lists of stuff that we know is safe and know, know that's okay. Uh, and then, um, you know, kind of before they really come in heavy handed later on, which I think uh, is going to happen eventually here in the next five years. Um, much more water efficient. Um, again, we use about 18% on average of the water of, of most soil operations. So um, unless you're doing it really extreme uh, uh, dry uh, dry farming, which some people are in uh, mad respect, but uh, not everyone has the luxury, unfortunately, or has the right soil type. So, all right. Um, so the next slide, um, uh, compared to hydro, you don't have the same kind of... Um, uh, biodiversity uh, so you have much more susceptible to things like pathogens with hydro than aquaponics um, you have lower um, nutrient requirements with aquaponics compared to hydro you're going to spend more per run you have uh, lower total ppms required in aquaponics and they were generally in the four to eight hundred range in our in our aquaponic system um, we're very rarely about much above that usually in the four to six hundred range in most systems so it's not like we're running crazy numbers in there it's just with the living microbes in there all the time. It's like they're living in active compost tea all the time because they have this huge aquatic microbiome and the terrestrial microbiome, which we'll talk about in the same root zone. Um, lower overhead costs with aquaponics. Again, um, you don't have to dump the water uh, like you do with hydro. Uh, you're going to get better terpene expression because microbes are heavily responsible for that. Uh, and um, you're going to use, again, up to four times more water per run. Uh, with hydroponics. 
So common issues, again, that we both have with the aquaponics industry and the cannabis industry, pesticide concerns, regulatory overreach. I think we can all uh, understand that one. Um, lack of standardized standard SOPs. Uh, you know, there's a lot of still uh, conflict within how things should be done, even though there's a lot of data out now. Um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of that's also coming from there's, there's a huge boom in aquaponic cannabis production, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, are worldwide. So you're getting a large range of different studies now and kind of fine tuning what aquaponics really should be nutrient wise and, and all that stuff, uh, as well as better mineralization methods for uh, fish waste, you know, hybridizing uh, a KNF. I know uh, uh, Joe Pate did a bunch of work with that with lactobacillus at Kentucky State. Uh, and then um, we I've taken done a ton of work with with different knf inputs over the years uh, in aquaponics and really helped really helps with mineralization you know if you want to increase your um, uh, mineral inputs from your fish waste you really you know adding things like imo and, and uh, labs really does make a difference in terms of unlocking significantly more minerals and same thing with any of your other you know manure based um, inputs uh, that are brewed um, Local permitting issues can be a pain in the ass sometimes. There's a lot of issues with the uh, aquaponics industry getting pegged with light restriction laws from cannabis. Um, managing labor costs, uh, managing uh, constantly changing regulations, and then overall biosecurity uh, can all be issues. So um, we're gonna talk about the different components. So you have your fish tanks, which are your main powerhouse. Uh, these are all for bigger scale systems, uh, obviously. Um, and we're, <laughs> we'll have some fun pictures after this, but, uh, these are very, very large, um, you know, the smallest one here is about 250 gallons up to a few thousand. So, um, these are what we use for larger operations, um, usually in sets of four, this way we can rotate the fish and harvest quarterly or harvest those tanks down over the course of three months, uh, depending on how we're going to sell them or what species and, and all that stuff and what the stocking density is and, and, uh, you know, the buyers and all that stuff. Uh, you can adjust your production based on that, not be totally wiped out. That, and also you never want to harvest more than one tank at any one time so that you're not taking too much of a hit to your nutrient levels to try and keep everything as normal as possible nutrient production-wise. And next, we uh, collect it into a radial flow filter, which we'll talk about, and brew it in usually conical bottom tanks. Um, this allows us to brew the fish waste up in a heavily mineralized manner with a big air stone and brew the living crap out of the uh fish crap <laughs> uh and uh, brew it same way you would a compost tea we'll add a little bit of molasses uh, uh or brown uh sugar you know raw sugar uh, depending on what we're doing and we'll also add um, microbial inputs like we were talking about um, uh, imo labs uh, or other mineral uh, microbial or fungal inputs and then sometimes we'll add um you know things like kelp uh, or other fpj or other inputs. We actually had a great talk a couple of weeks ago with Quan Con Fem. Uh, I think it was episode 251 or 253. I forget which of the uh, Growing the Fishes podcast where he was talking about fermenting uh, using liquid IMO ferments. He's going to be one of our speakers uh, at the conference that I'm doing. Um, but uh, he's talking about doing banana tree trunk ferments for tons of potassium, getting crazy high. Uh, many thousands of, of ppm is potassium from fermenting banana tree stalks and and all these other different long-term liquid imo from it so um, you can utilize these tanks for lots of different things so they're good to have around even if you aren't using them for fish waste um, and then your your hydrogen or lava rock lava rock is a cheaper way to do it for cannabis growers since you're not really going to work with it a lot if you are doing stuff for education or for kiddos 
or lettuce production, stuff like that. I highly recommend investing the extra cash for the round stuff so you don't grind your hands up. Lava rock tends to be pretty brass on your hands. Um, and then you have your grow beds. Um, this is going to be um, on a commercial scale, roughly uh, 0.6 to 0.9, depending on fish species and density. Um, uh, gallons of fish tank per square foot of canopy space uh, for, you know, greenhouse scale. Uh, and then for smaller scale, you know, you're looking at like uh, 40 gallons per, you know, three by three. Uh, if you're looking at it on a, on a home scale, you know, minimum 40 gallon tank. If you're looking to do a three by three bed, uh, if you're doing a grow tent and make sure you stock the crap out of that fish tank because those plants are going to pull it. Uh, cannabis are very heavy feeders. And then we have our sump tanks, which is where everything flows back to. Um, you want your sump tanks to be 125 to 130% of your grow bed space, which we'll talk about a little bit later on um, in order to take all the, the water from, from this. So, and that's based on flood. Anyways, we'll talk about that when we get to it. So here's the fish tanks. You can use anything for a fish tank. You can use 55 gallon drums to get in the corner. You can use an old bathtub if you got one of those sticking around. Um, you can use a fish tank and we'll talk about different ways to modify those. You know, a lot of people have fish tanks and a grow tent and want to connect the two. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how to do that and also give you guys some kits there at the end uh, that you guys can use to, if you want, you know, get excited or want to use it for education even. Uh, you have some some build lists for you and then we see a lot of people use even old bathtubs and jacuzzis you can get those for free online uh, and utilize those for fish tanks depending on what your climate is um, so uh, and then building your own you know you can build your own framed uh, fish tank and and get a liner you know duraskrim or ultra scrim liner really are the best uh, they're both food safe and uh, are a better option so these are some of the bigger fish tanks we work with um, we grow sometimes up to 3,000 gallons, depending on what fish species that we're working with. Um, so kind of fun. <laughs> it's in Oklahoma. Yeah. So if you uh, are working on fish tanks, glass fish tanks, you can actually drill your tank out. Um, you do need to make a little wall of clay around your hole, trace your hole out, uh, take a drill bit and drill nice and slow. And you can put a hole through it and then put your bulkhead on. This kind of is the easiest way long term to, to set up your, your system if you're going to set up, especially a fish room uh, and you have multiple fish tanks, you can plumb it all to a centralized sump tank and then connect that to your your grow bed for your grow tent. And then uh, you can grow all your plants from your fish waste. You know, those, those freeloading fish don't really uh, pull their weight very much, but you can at least get them to start paying the fertilizer bills, you know. Um, so and then diversifying your fish food as well will, will help. Uh, dial it in. So we'll talk about that, but um, a little bit later on. So um, you want to, again, we, we talk, I talked about all this and it's fine. Um, so the other way you can do it is uh, overflow boxes. So you can put the overflow box over the back of the fish tank. Uh, the water fills up through that, goes through the overflow U uh, and then down the back of the, uh, the filter box. And then you run this down to your sump tank the same way you'd run it to your uh, sump if you had a flood and drain bed. And then you uh, run that pump back up to your grow bed and your fish tank on a Y and away you go. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is a lot of times people have an issue with getting the air out of this. When the siphon breaks, this will get an air pocket at the top. If you take a piece of airline like you use for your air stones and slip it in and through the pipe up, up to here and then suck the air out, you can you know restart the siphon really simply. Um, it's definitely something that, uh, I don't know. A lot of people, for some reason, are never taught at the pet shop. 
And here's some of the smaller kits. You can get the uh, Aqua Sprouts kit. Uh, that's by a guy down in Austin. He's a friend of mine, real great guy. Um, good for clones. You know, if you got an aquarium at home, you just want to slap this on and then grow your clones in the top. It's awesome for that. Uh, you also have the the uh, Aqua Roots or whatever that is. Uh, you can get at Home Depot or whatever. Um, and then it's just some homemade systems that I saw. I thought I'd throw in here too. All right, so fish species. Again, if you're doing cannabis, I generally recommend koi or goldfish. They're much more forgiving, uh, especially for resale. If you go into butterfly koi, you're going to have a much better time, an easier time reselling those than you will doing any type of food fish. Um, you can do tilapia, especially if you like tacos and stuff like that. They're very easy to raise as long as you keep the water temperature warm. Uh, they will start breeding on their own unless you have males only. Um, but butterfly koi really are the best. Uh, if you do want to get into food fish, pan fish like bluegill and perch uh, seem to have some of the better uh, resale values uh, in the industry right now. Uh, meat processing license, again, can't be had by a cannabis license. So you have to have a separate property uh, with a meat processing license that you can supply to or some, you know, some other way around that. Um, I also I've helped with a couple of different people work on grants for mobile processing trucks for this very reason. But I don't know if they ever got them. I never heard back after we applied so um, but it's definitely an issue that eventually needs to be addressed on the federal level um, and kind of a goofy funny uh, uh, problem to have Oops, sorry keep hitting the wrong button um, and then uh, tropical fish species can be quite profitable as well you know um, arowanas um, uh, you can collect red tail catfish all different types of stuff you can go on craigslist and just be the you know home for misfit fish uh, and uh, get all those giant fish that people buy it they shouldn't have. Iridescent sharks, red-tailed catfish, shovel-nosed catfish, arowanas, uh, tiger fish, all those great for aquaponics because they get huge. You ha usually have much bigger tanks than the local aquarists and uh, you kind of can be kind of the uh, the local fish adoption center uh, <laughs> for, for large exotic fish. I know we had a, a pretty cool showroom at the one place I worked at. Uh, uh, for that type of thing. So fish species to use. So um, good ones to use are tilapia, koi, goldfish. Uh, paku are really good as well, although they're becoming more and more restricted in different states, but they are probably the single fastest growing fish that you could keep. And they're also garbage disposals. They'll eat damn near anything. So you can take your fan leaves, you can take your you know leftovers from dinner and pretty much anything else and pour it in there and they'll eat it. They're, they're really are, you know, omnivores, a little bit more on the herbivore side, but much more omnivores. Um, plecos, you know, breeding up exotic plecos, you can get lots of these at a small size, uh, partner up with a breeder or something like that, grow them out and, and sell them back to them uh, or sell them back to a distributor uh, after a year or two of growth, uh, eating the algae off your tanks and, uh, and keeping the place clean uh, can be highly profitable. Some of those go from, you know, eight to $12 fish up to three to $400 fish and two or three years of growth. So if you look at that compared to the amount of time, a lot of other fish, especially food fish, it doesn't really compare uh, at all. Um, so perch, catfish, arapaima, uh, again, that's another more restricted species, but highly profitable. Uh, arowanas, again, especially the uh, the reds and some of the other fancy ones can be highly profitable, uh, especially with this, you have, again, you have the room uh, that a lot of other people don't have for, for breeding larger fish like that. It, profit off of it. You know, you can maximize that. Um, bluegills, uh, sunfish, Chinese hyphen sharks are another great one for keeping your algae down. Uh, if you do happen to have a little bit of extra light in your system. A fish not to use. So trout and salmonids and striped bass 
have a much more sensitive, um, much higher sensitivity to potassium over time. And while it can be done, um, you're you're really flirting with uh, a, a difficult situation uh, by, by doing those. It's much, much harder to do than a lot of the other ones, and it's easier to screw up. So I generally recommend against it. Can it be done? Yes. Is it much more difficult? Yes. Um, ornamental shrimps, again, same reason. They can't handle the higher potassium levels and some of the higher nutrient levels that we're going to run uh, in aquaponics. Uh, edible shrimp and prawn, again, same problem. Uh, tropical fish, again, tend to be more sensitive to stuff like that. So why would an Aquarius do uh, aquaponics? Well, um, you can start to reduce your water changes. You don't have to do water changes. You'll get the nitrogen export for the, the plants. Um, you also can, um, you know, again, make those freeloading fish pay their weight. Um, you know. <laughs> and, you know, also just add food stuff for your kitchen. You know, if you can grow your whole herb garden off of your fish tank, why not? And you'll have great tasting herbs. Um, so uh, different types of fish foods. So the higher the protein value, the higher the nitrogen output of the fish. So if I feed the carnivores, I'm going to get much higher nitrogen out, out of them than I do if I feed an omnivore or a herbivore. Uh, herbivores are going to have much higher phosphorus output. So that's your way to, you know, at least through that means to modify the, those two inputs uh, uh, to quite an extent. Um, if you add uh, phosphorus, uh, chelating microbes, uh, things like mammoth P or PSB or PSNB, um, you can add those as well uh, and really, really maximize the phosphorus efficiency of, of aquaponics to the point where you don't really have to add much, if anything, uh, at all to it phosphorus-wise because those microbes are just on top of it. You just have to inoculate them. Uh, and then we, uh, as far as fish foods to raise, if you want to be sustainable, uh, I don't think anything really beats dubia and hissing cockroaches. I know they're not everyone's favorite creature, uh, but they, they, those ones are slow and not particularly bad. Uh, and if you take them and freeze them, uh, they're, they're great fish feed. Um, you know, raise them up, put them in some pipes, cut one inch pipe, uh, dump them into Ziplocs, and then you can freeze them for two days uh, to make sure they're nice, not only... Uh, to kill anything that might be on them, although they are very clean. They do have little mites on them that, that keep them clean. Um, but um, uh, they are very high in fat to protein to calcium to vitamin ratio. Uh, they are one of the most balanced foods that you can raise fish, especially if you're trying to do it completely uh, uh, sustainable. Um, they also can be fed fan leaves and other things as long as you're mindful of, you know, when you spray the things like bassiana and stuff like that. Um, you know, you don't want to feed them... Uh, a fresh application of that. It's not going to, you're not going to have a good day. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, they are really one of the most balanced uh, things. The, the next uh, most balanced uh, nutrient input for an aquaponic system for the fish would be black soldier fly larva. Uh, and then earthworms and crickets can also be great um, and easy to raise. Uh, and then black worms, these are an aquatic worm you can get through the pet trade, are great for adding at the water inputs of your grow beds. They tend to go down and seek out your anaerobic areas that would otherwise be, um, start to raise the pH of the system uh, and potentially house, um, you know, harmful anaerobic. Um, sorry about that. I don't know what the hell that is. Someone's got a go-kart or something outside. Um, that potentially harms um, uh, the, the system. Uh, as far as uh, uh, pathogens, uh, these uh, blackworms will seek it out and um, uh, eliminate them. They love to feed on those bacteria in those anaerobic zones. So they help keep the system clean. And that's one of their main things to feed on. Uh, so they are very cheap. You can get them at most pet stores as a live fish food. 
uh, and especially if you're doing aquaponics or anything where you have those types of um, anaerobic environments, they'll tunnel through, get oxygenated water in there and help you know, reoxygenate those areas to make them healthy again. Uh, different types of aquaponic systems. So we're going to touch on this. So wicking beds, aeroponics, media beds, deep water culture, nutrient film technique, uh, and dual root zone aquaponics. So uh, wicking beds, or a lot of people call them SIPs, sub-irrigated planters. Um, they're great for root crops, uh, especially if you just you know, take your um, uh, smart pots and stick them in your media beds. So the bottom part of it hits the top of the flood la layer when it, when it floods. You can grow carrots and potatoes and garlic and onions right in your regular grow beds. It, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, but um, outside of that, um, the other thing that we were able to grow is osha root, which traditionally is very hard to grow in an artificial environment because it has aquatic, very water-loving microbes that need to live on the root system. <laughs> so those are, are very, very good methods for doing things where you need to have a, you know, a water-rich, uh, heavy mycorrhizal or mycorrhizal environment um, uh, with, uh, you know, heavy living uh microbes in the soil there. Uh, we were able to grow OSHA root even in the showroom uh, of one of the places I was working at, which is pretty wild, um, uh, at quite a large one, actually. Um, and other things too, ginger, we've had really good luck with ginger and um, uh, taro and um, a whole bunch of different other uh, herbs. Uh, the downsides to them is if you don't get your microbes right, they just rot. Uh, at the end. Um, we had quite a few issues in the beginning when we were experimenting with wicking beds and aquaponic cannabis where um, the roots were staying a little bit too wet right at the end and, and having issues with um, the plants wilting right before harvest uh, and kind of you know reducing the total yield a little bit, which kind of sucked. But uh, I think now with uh, better knowledge of CANF and stuff like that, you could do it no problem. We've had no, no issues doing lots of other similar type stuff since then, but those early testing, we really... Uh, really was an issue. I think you really do need to have the right type of soil mix if you're going to try and do that long term. Um, but here's an example of, of what I like to do for, for grow beds. So you put your uh, overflow uh, here so that you when you fill it up, you know how high it is. You just tip this down when you're filling it up. You fill it back up this way. It gives you kind of an emergency overflow if you get too much rain. You can also tilt it to whatever height you want it to be. Uh, and then you set your layer there uh, with your, your rocks underneath and your your uh, barrier with your soil on top. And this kind of gives you a foolproof way. You always know what, what the water level is. And there's no guessing, right? That can often be a problem with these types of beds with the liner on the inside of it. Uh, and then here's some examples of um, uh, root, pout, root, root pouches uh, that were just planted right in the media beds. Uh, and then we put carrots in them. So just to give an example, uh, you can even do root crops and aquaponics if you stick them in the media beds that way. So nutrient film technique. So this method we regularly utilize for kitchen herbs and stuff like that because we can pull the plants out and root prune them. Uh, when they root prune them, uh, many different essential or oil producing herbs will increase uh, their terpene expression and their essential oil production. So um, that's regularly done on, on commercial scale uh, aquaponic setups, uh, especially for kitchen herbs and, and resell of cut herbs. Um, plants grow super fast because of the high gas exchange, although uh, you do need to be careful about airflow. You know, it is a little bit better to inject a little bit of air into them uh, from your air pumps in order to, you know, increase the airflow through those pipes because it can get a bit stale and you can get some issues with pythium if you aren't dosing with things like lactobacillus, although lactobacillus does a really good job of getting rid of it and keeping it gone. 
and aquaponics will dose labs usually at a one to 1000 uh, rate uh, every one to two weeks, depending on the size of the system. Uh, bigger systems we dose a little bit more often. Uh, and then um, uh, the downsides are again, it's much more temp temperature sensitive. So if you have a real hot day, NFT is going to have a really hard uh, time uh, with those because those roots are going to heat up, right? There's nothing to protect those roots. There's no soil or water to insulate those roots. So they're, they're going to pout a lot more uh, in a hotter climate than they would in a cooler climate or a more stable climate. So keep that in mind uh, when you're thinking about this, but great for clones. You know, you can totally get clones, especially clones up out of the way. Um, and here's some examples of a, you know, commercial size setup. Uh, and then an example of you know, home scale with tough to So tree drums. So this is something that we worked on uh, quite a bit when I was at the aquaponics source. We had a couple of different customers wanting to do fruit trees. Um, so we kind of built giant dual root zone pots. Um, these are really good for large, long-term crops, especially trees. Um, and you'll see why. Um, so this is kind of the idea. Now, you, you don't want to do 50-50. Uh, I do need to update this graphic a little bit. You do want to do it a little bit more uh, two-thirds soil to one-third flood and drain. Um, but we've had great success with many different types of citrus trees, peach trees, apple trees, mango cuts, uh, moringa. Although moringa will grow in media beds like wildfire, it, it loves media beds. Um, uh, and all different other types of, of trees that we've experimented with. But you can see here's the bell siphon assembly or the, the flood and drain assembly uh, on this. And then also not flooding and draining them too much. You were only flood and draining them maybe once a day to let them you know, sip some water. We weren't, weren't going crazy. And then we were top watering them once a week uh, uh, through an automated system. So that, that really seems to be the, the ticket for doing uh, to trees this way. They, so the woodier the crop with aquaponics and, and any type of aquatic uh, setup, the woodier the crop, the more reliant it is on mycorrhizae in order to produce lignin and all the other, you know, compounds that it needs as a tree. Um, so it needs to have a mycorrhizal zone. Without that, they don't do as well, and you won't really see that explosive growth. Um, you really have to have that. And you also see that with certain crops, specialty crops, you know, um, where they have to have that association. Um, uh, vertical towers. So these uh, can be good, again, for growing stuff out of the way. Uh, great for tomatoes, especially over fish tanks. Uh, root crops don't grow in them. Uh, large plants can be kind of unwieldy. Uh, and then um, uh, some crops are just a pain in the ass to grow this way. Um, so this is a bunch of different types of towers I worked with, when, again, when I was at the aquaponics source. Um, these were the larger five by five towers uh, with knockout cap and a, and a bag. Uh, same thing with these. Um, and then this one as well and this one as well. Um, and then here's a, a what, uh, what do they call them? Zip towers or something. Um, you can see our design was vastly superior. Um, but uh, you can grow all different types of stuff and, and even pop the bags out independently and, and replace them and all that stuff. So um, it's, again, really good if you combine it with lattice, uh, throw your cherry tomatoes and stuff up on there and grow it right above the fish tank with the light held sideways. And uh, away you go. Make use of the space that would otherwise be unutilized. Flood and drain beds. And if uh, this is part of the education we have through through our class, we have a bunch of different builds. This is one of the greenhouse builds that we have as part of the course. Um, uh, so uh, flood and drain beds really are the most used uh, aquaponic option. 
uh, out there. So our aquaponic cannabis, uh, most farms are utilizing this method and it's because the flood and drain method acts like a diaphragm to flush fresh oxygen in and out of that soil zone uh, and, and give the microbes and the plants the best, best growth rate. Get some water. As I reach for my water and I'm not even talking. <laughs> This is awesome. I'm sweating writing notes here. <laughs> so flood and drain beds um, are really the best. And you, you just stick your pots down. You can also, a lot of times for bigger setups, we'll take a four by four pipe uh, and cut a bunch of slits in it and stick it all the way down to make sure there's always good water flow through the beds. And it also gives us a set height to sink the, the pots down to. So we'll sink them down just you know deep enough to keep the, the algae off the water and the fungus gnats away. Um, so not very deep and then flood and draining them uh, you know four to five inches only uh, in the bottom just to give them that gas exchange and that that air exchange in the root zone it, again works like a diaphragm and, and makes your soil happier and your your water happier and gives fresh oxygen to those roots and, and accelerates that growth rate we, we see up to uh, double the growth speed in veg and 15 percent uh, seven to 15 percent on average flower on off of flowering time so even faster flowering times again What's really important on the fastering flower times, though, is reducing nitrogen levels uh, as you go through flower. And I think it's just as important in soil, but it's not often as easily seen as it is with aquatic-based medias. Um, with aquatic-based medias as well, you don't need an offline biofilter. Um, the square feet of uh, available for microbes in media beds is thousands of times what any of those filters have, so they're redundant. So uh, dual root zone planting. So this is a dual root zone pot. We have media in the bottom, either hydrogen or lava rock. If you're doing this at scale, lava rock is much cheaper. Um, go get a super sack of lava rock. Just make sure you rinse it really well. Uh, punch a whole bunch of holes in the bottom of the super sack when you get it. And then just take your hose and just rinse it and rinse it and rinse it until that water's clean. It's the easiest, laziest way to do it. And no one has to lift anything or sift anything or put it into fucking sieves and all the other headache that everyone does. Um, it's far easier to do it that way. Um, so what's nice about the dual root zone planting is you have the terrestrial microbiome that you've had so many awesome guests talk about on this channel. And then you have your aquatic microbiome in the bottom. And as the water goes up and down uh, in this section, it forces that air to draft down through the soil and then back up through the soil from the lower space here to try and fill the, the, the void when that water goes down. So this allows for a high level of gas exchange, enforced gas exchange, which really is part of the reason why it grows so well, but also simply the biodiversity. Again, you have double the number of microbial species these, these plants have access to in their root zone. And anyone that's talked about living soil knows or has grown living soil knows that's the key to having good flavor increasing the number of microbe species in your soil uh, and this gives you a very easy way to do it in a controllable manner uh, you can even do this with hydroponics or even uh, a cocoa or you know this you can do this and adapt it to lots of different methods it doesn't have to be just what i'm talking about so adapt it to what works for you and you can see here how the pot is about halfway down in the media bed and there's a little bit of calcium build up there uh, uh, from that Ooh. Uh, and then again, you don't need decoupled systems with this method because you can individually feed them. The other nice thing is, is that if we set up each of the different strains on their own top feeding manifold, uh, each strain here can be top fed separately um, uh, on their own. So I can supplement this strain separately from this strain 
uh, and have no effect on the fish or the other cultivars in the room. So it gives you a ton of control, um, uh, similar to soil, uh, with the level of control that you have, uh, even though everything is being 90% fed by the same nutrient source. And this is kind of how the roots end up breaking out. They kind of spread up through here. And again, I'm not a great artist. Uh, it's MS paint, I will admit it. Um, so here's your water line. Again, you do want an air gap between your burlap or cloth, a root permeable cloth layer uh, in your pots uh, for that roots to bust through uh, and then get into that aquatic layer. So here's an example of some, some facilities. This is Marty's facility out in Oregon, and this is ZBD hemp out in Colorado. This is a, a modified uh, and adapted um, lettuce facility, actually, on the left there. That's becoming more and more common. We're actually doing some uh, rebuilds, too, on um, pig houses because you can replumb them uh, after a deep clean and, and work really well for, for adapting to uh, greenhouses. Uh, and we're not doing anything for cannabis yet, but we're doing some veggie systems that way. It's pretty cool. Uh, so, so dual root zone uh, setup really in media beds is the best setup. Like we talked about, um, you can move the plants around. You know, if you're uh, in an area where you have bad weather and you need to move the plants out of the greenhouse or into the greenhouse or move them around suddenly uh, for any other reason that you might think of, um, it is nice to be able to just pull them up and move them if it comes to it. Um, you can see here is a plant that was growing for two months in the media bed there uh, and just massive root systems on it and a huge amount of plants. This plant also had over 600 clones taken off of it. Um, in that same time. Uh, and and that, again, that's really one of the things that they, they accelerate in is, is clone production. Um, it also adds anchor weight. If you're growing in an outdoor aquaponic bed, uh, uh, one of the traditional IBC beds that you see from the, the FAO uh, document or some of the other people that have YouTube, on YouTube that have the those types of builds, um, your plants will tip over in a normal media bed or DWC. They don't have any way to anchor themselves. Um, but, but having uh, the dual root zone pots, it gives them a way to kind of get some feet under them and, and stay anchored and keep from popping over. So it really is a, a great way to um, uh, get the best out of it, especially for larger plants, any type of fruiting crop, uh, pumpkins, squash, uh, watermelon, tomatoes, peppers, you should do in dual roots and pots and aquaponics because of the extra beneficial control. Anything flowering and fruiting really, uh, you're going to have more control. Also, if I'm doing berries, say I want to do raspberries or or something like that, I can do a very acidic soil mix uh, in that and not have to worry about that being radically different from the, the water because those microbes that live on this on those roots that want to have that more acidic soil will be perfectly happy uh, in that upper portion and still provide the secondary metabolites to the plant. So it doesn't care that the bottom portion of the roots are a little bit higher pH. Um, so you can utilize that really to, to modify and dial in quite a wide range of crops. I think a lot wider than people realize. The downside to this is that they don't provide a huge thermal battery, quite the same as a, a DWC bed does, but that's okay. And here's some more uh, commercial uh, aquaponic cannabis. I think a lot of people often say it doesn't work. Um, I don't know. Those look better than a lot of rooms that I get called to go see, so uh, I'll let you judge. Uh, this is um, Vertica Aquaponics uh, out in Oklahoma. They're currently the largest aquaponic cannabis producer. They're using adapted roller tables that they've modified to be flood and drain in the bottom portion. Uh, and they're doing very large scale roller table, traditional, you know, large scale production. This looks not very different than the traditional flood and drain bed. And this is all fed by fish, you know, so uh, I, it's great. Uh, so, um, uh, dual root zone uh, can also be done in DWC. 
Uh, we, you know, there's many different videos that I've done on my YouTube channel on this. Um, again, we, we traditionally do something like this here, cut a hole on the bottom. Although now we do kind of four holes or three big holes for the roots um, and give them at least some type of cross support or we'll put bamboo at the bottom. Um, uh, just because on longer term moms, uh, the weight can kind of push them down. If you're doing single run and you're just going to flip them right away, it's okay to do it this way. Don't worry about it. But uh, if you're going to do it longer term, definitely give them a little bit more support uh, than this photo. And then throw your burlap or other uh, root permeable media there. Throw your soil in and then uh, put your plants in. And you can see here a nice big row of them uh, out here in Oklahoma. And these are, again, this used to be a lettuce facility. This is just modifying the... Uh, the raft beds there uh, to do what they need to. And we get tons of mushrooms. Like every day we're getting three to five different types of mushrooms flushing in this room because of the, the environment's just perfect. Um, tends to have a little bit slower growth though. We notice about a 15 to 20% slower growth rate um, compared to the flood and drain. And we just attribute that to the, the DO difference. But even with the, uh, you know additional DO, we still weren't quite matching the uh, uh, the growth rate is the flood and drain. Again, this is a, a little bit later on. Uh, this is out in Vertica Aquaponics. Again, nice and stacked. So you have the tale of two biomes. You have your aquatic biome and your terrestrial biome. Your terrestrial biome, you have your mycorrhizae, terrestrial bacteria, your nematodes, your, protozo your protists. Um, uh, you can top water or top feed nutrients. If you want to do traditional top feeds, you can make super soil mixes. You can use coots mix and have kind of a long-term release mix in it. You can, you know, add whatever you want to that as long as you don't overdose it. And that's actually something we forgot to, well, actually we have a slide on it. Never mind. I think it's the next slide. Um, uh, I changed my order uh, last night and I forgot. Anyways. Um, so the soil layer acts as a sponge uh, that can absorb nutrients. So if I want to uh, feed it additional potassium or something else that might potentially be an issue for the fish, it gives me a way to kind of add it to the root system without, you know, having any type of negative impact. So you can use WSK or potassium sulfate or langbanite in the upper root zone, depending on what it needs, uh, and, and really help with that. Um, potassium silicate as well is another good one, although it will raise your pH. Um, so uh, also provides a great place for your beneficial nematodes, you know, helps defend against things like root aphids and thrips and root, you know, other problems, uh, mealybugs and all that stuff. Um, it can be a little bit of a pain in the ass to deal with root aphids because root aphids are very water loving. Um, they are something that can be a little bit tricky, but we have pretty good protocols now for eliminating them uh, pretty reliably now, uh, even in commercial scale. So they are definitely something that was pretty tricky there for a while, but we have it down down in the, if you haven't been familiarized with the product Delifer, it is the shit. Um, it's a very Bassiana strain, nothing crazy, don't worry. Um, widest possible range for microbial species. Uh, again, you have the aquatic and terrestrial microbes in the system. So if you're five different types of control, we can either dose nutrients directly into the water, as long as they're fish compatible. We can dose nutrients directly into the soil. We can make custom long-term soil mixes. We can foliar feed the plants, or we can adjust the fish feed uh, like we talked about with more or less nitrogen uh, uh, to have, or more or less protein for the fish, I'm sorry, uh, to adjust our nitrogen and phosphorus ratios coming back out of the fish. Uh, for dual root zone dosing, um, we on commercial scale systems, I don't, I don't have a really good photo of this 
um, where the plants aren't in the way or where there isn't something I don't want to also show in the background. So uh, I just pulled it up in SketchUp, one of the recent builds I did. So utilizing a self-purging manifold like this, that's going to automatically air purge when you flood from the bottom and running it in a seconds timer gives you very accurate dosing for large scale operations um, and doing hundreds or even thousands of plants in a row uh, and having it very accurate across the whole thing as long as the thing is level. Something that we took a lot of experimentation to for doing um, vertical towers uh, and is something that we utilize for commercial operations for doing lots of plants. You can set each one on their own manifold. It works great for each strain. Um, not always the cheapest to set up in the beginning, but you don't get the level of control that you get with any other method uh, in terms of you know min-maxing the amount of water that you're using and reducing it down as low as possible. So for example, if I want to do a dual root zone plant, uh, I'm going to take, and we're assuming that this is, uh, you know, half soil, half uh, media. We're going to pour 16 ounces of water into the top of this soil zone before it starts to drip out the bottom. Okay, if I just have this sitting on the corner or whatever before I see its first drop. So I know that the saturation level of the soil is 16 ounces. Okay, we're going to cut that amount in half, eight ounces, because we're going to get constant amount of humidity from the bottom here. It's going to help at least maintain a certain level of moisture in the soil at least through the bottom third. Uh, so we only ever need to dose eight ounces of water to maintain moisture level in the upper source once we've done that initial watering in the beginning, once we transplant them. And as long as we do that two to three times a week, two times in the beginning, three times later on, once they're more established, uh, we don't have any issues with, with maintaining moisture on the top. Uh, and it gives us a ton of control. Again, we can run any type of combination of, of uh, compost tea, compost extract, KNF, JADAM inputs, uh, that would otherwise be or not be fish compatible through that uh, and, and amend it any way that you want to do it. Um, and then this also allows you to have, a, again, a, a highly uh, level of control with full automation across thousands of plants and allow one or two people to operate a very large place and have high level of control over exactly how much is going into each plant. So uh, aquaponics, again, increases the metabolite, secondary metabolites by having the terrestrial biome and the aquatic microbiome, like we were talking about. Uh, I think we've already talked about that enough, so we'll kind of skip through this one. Um, but here's an example of uh, some of the, the trichome density that we can get on aquaponic cannabis. Um, this is a, a really nice picture of uh, uh, some of the plants that we've grown. A huge amount of uh, increase in, um, uh, against DWC, about 15% uh, in terms of um, uh, DWC and, and media beds, uh, a, a difference in THC. And then for CBD, we've had, again, as much as 100% increase on average, about a 30% increase in CBD in cultivars. We don't really know why. Um, we're kind of guessing that there's a, a aquatic microbe that's increasing that expression. Uh, same thing with THCV and CBDV. The varins uh, seem to have a very big uh, increase in production through aquaponics versus other methods with, again, growing the same cuts in, in soil and aquaponics. Uh, and then total terpenes, that's really the biggest thing. We've had immense increases in terpenes, but on average, uh, you know, 35 to, to 75% increase in total terpenes because, again, you're stimulating that plant's immune system uh, in a way that's much, much higher uh, than um, uh, you can with soil alone or, or even a full DWC, like an aquatics all alone is still not going to get you the same results as um, you know, having both the soil and the aquatics, then you're getting both microbiomes stimulating the, the plant's immune system and increasing the secondary metabolites. 
uh, giving that plant a better defense system against things that might run into uh, and um, uh, dramatically increasing the, uh, the total terpene amounts. All right, so um, dual root zone versus media bed uh, controls. You can see here, uh, this is some of our early testing where we have um, media beds here and uh, dual root zone here. Media bed versus DWC versus wicking bed versus dual root zones. Um, you can see here we have uh, wicking bed pots here and uh, smart pots and then dual root zones here. It's one of the side-by-sides we we're running over there. Um, this is one of the early work at Green Relief Incorporated. I, I did a bunch of consulting for them uh, early on. They did a bunch of side-by-sides of DWC uh, media beds, dual root zones uh, with and without. Uh, and that's why they ended up coming to dual root zones as well. Uh, everyone wants to start doing side-by-side -side switches over to dual root zones. It's just more, more control than any other method and uh, much better production. The one downside is it is a little bit more labor intensive when you're planting uh, and transplanting. It can be a little bit more of a pain in the ass. So uh, uh, making sure that you have a potting machine really cuts down on labor at scale. Uh, so deep water culture also, um, uh, uh, again, um, doesn't have a lot of ways to add uh, nutrient inputs. Media beds don't have a lot of way to add nutrient inputs, so they're not very good. Wicking beds, uh, again, can kind of have issues at the end. Um, Little, little bit more chaotic with the wicking beds, uh, unless you're very familiar with SIPs, and then, you know, by all means. Uh, and then you have a dual root zone, again, most control because of the two different methods. And then indexing valve systems, you see uh, certain groups pushing indexing valves um, uh, systems these days. If your indexing valve fails, you just lost like six to eight rows. That is not acceptable in a commercial operation. And it just, it doesn't work. I, we worked with a group in Jamaica for a little bit that was trying to use those to save water and we had one fail and no one noticed and it wiped out four rows of plants and it was like really devastating to the operation. So um, definitely don't want to um, to do that if, if you can avoid it. Now, a lot of people say that you don't need to add anything but fish waste. Uh, the front row here, you can see, is nothing added but fish waste. That's all they added. Um, this back row here, oh, there's a middle row here right behind this one that's fish waste plus earthworm casting uh, earth juice. Uh, and then the back row here was a, a little bit of organic supplementation for potassium and phosphorus uh, uh, within the dual root zone. Uh, in a, again, all these cuts are off the same mom. And you can see there, there's just night and day difference. So, and look, you can see how stacked they all are. And this is with uh, some of the education that we do with uh, Marty Waddell over at AP Meds. Uh, we have a class together, uh, which we'll have uh, info for on the end. And then here's some close-ups of those bud structures. They're, again, unsupplemented versus supplemented, um, just to kind of give people the, you know, you can grow. Yeah, you can get something smokable if you don't add anything but fish waste, but it's not going to look as good as what you want. Um, and I think, again, that's one of the bigger common myths about aquaponics. Uh, is that, you know, fish waste solves all, and you can see for yourself, it doesn't. <laughs> all right, so um, filtration, you, know, you have radio flow filters. Um, so radio flows here, you can see the uh, how this works. The water flows in, it has to go down and back up before it can go back out of the system. 
Um, so this allows the heavy particles to drop down. We can then purge them out and, and utilize, utilize them for further uh, brewing or fermenting, depending on what we're doing, uh, or soil isolation. Uh, other options are swirl filters and mechanical drum filters. Um, we utilize those sometimes on really big operations. So the mechanical drum filters utilize a lot of water. So I, I don't really like utilizing them because they're kind of wasteful compared to most other filtration systems. And then separate filters uh, aren't really needed for little systems. You know, if you're doing something, you know, an IBC tote or smaller, you don't need to have a separate filtration system. Just don't go crazy with feeding your fish. Make sure you're checking your nitrates and, uh, and you're good. Um, and then uh, solid separation again for later brewing, which we're going to talk about. So mineralization. Um, mineralization, uh, you can see here, is the process of brewing the fish waste. So this is one of the bigger operations we set up in Georgia recently. And then this is another operation we set up here in, um, uh, this one is in California. And this is just an example of the vortex brewers a lot of people have for um, uh, brewing the nutrients and stuff at their farm. Uh, you, what you're going to do is you're going to take and fill these up with fish waste up to about, in this case, up to about here uh, with fish waste uh, from those radial flow separators that we just talked about. And then we're going to fill this up with aquaponics water to about here. And then we're going to fire up this air blower and it's going to brew and brew and brew. We're going to run one of them for three days and one of them for 14 days uh, or seven days, depending on what it is that we're doing. Uh, and, um, uh, and then what we're going to do is shut it off. Uh, after that time for two to three hours. And then uh, what will happen is the waste will settle down to the bottom here, usually to about here uh, uh, or, you know, equivalent, obviously. Um, and then uh, we open the valve here and stream off all the clear, heavy, mineralized, mineral rich water that does not have fish waste in it back directly into the system or uh, into this little nipple here, which we can then put into buckets for either resale or into the other mineralized systems that are in the showroom or, or other portions of the farm. So this gives you a great way to kind of hyper mineralize your, your fish waste uh, in, in a way that's highly controllable. Again, you can add things like lactobacillus to ensure food safety. You can add different types of microbials and other things like that um, in order to, um, uh, again, increase mineralization, liquid IMOs, uh, the Jadam equivalent, uh, it's escaping me at the, the moment, like J, JMS, JLF, I forget which one. I always forget the Jadam ones. Um, anyways, uh, you can utilize all that stuff. Uh, just avoid any yucca or saponin products. You will kill all of your fish in a very short period of time. The longer you brew your fish waste, the lower the nitrogen. So if your goal is to maintain at least a part of that nitrogen for for utilization by the plants, then, then do a shorter brew, brew time. If your goal is to eliminate that nitrogen, say a flowering time, or get it as low as possible, then you wanna do a longer brew time on those. Again, this is kind of a general overview of, of aquaponic cannabis. Uh, so for grow beds, you can use things like concrete mixing trays. You can get at Home Depot on a small scale up to the bigger hydro ones, or even build your own uh, out of liners, you know, again, at the commercial scale. Um, uh, anything um, over 50 square feet, though, again, highly recommend going with bell siphons or uh, loop siphons over bell siphons. And again, you, you really want four inches uh, uh, to 10 inches, depending on the size of your plants. You're doing long term moms, uh, you know, a bit of a deeper bed is going to benefit you versus, uh, you know, shorter term plants and get away with something shallower. 
So your sumps, again, if you're just hooking up a, a fish tank with a hang on the back filter uh, to your grow tent with a three by three or four by four bed in it, you can use a tough tote or something like that. It's perfectly fine. There's no reason you need to go spend a bunch of money. Um, you know, it's nothing, it's HDPE, it's fine. There's nothing crazy on it. Um, but you do wanna make sure that, so when your grow bed is flooded, uh, the media displaces about 50% of the water. So uh, roughly, okay. Um, so you want to utilize that as your your point for for flooding and draining so uh, if i had a 100 gallon bed um, it's going to take about 62.5 gallon sump tank in order to make sure that it can fully flood and drain and evaporate a little bit and you're not going to burn your pump out uh, so that's kind of a general rule of thumb uh, uh, and you can scale your sump spaced around that so you kind of do your total sump volume divided by five or divided by two to get your your displacement volume and then uh, times that by, um, uh, you know, 25 to 30%, um, and you're good to go. All right, so um, some are, um, again, you can also put all your, your samplers, so your pH probes, your different uh, water nutrient testers and all that stuff, uh, your temperature monitors, your auto top-offs. Um, uh, although one other thing I want to say is a lot of people will dig these and stick them in the ground. Uh, if you get a good flood, they will come flying out of the ground because they have this air, air pocket and it's like taking a cup, right? And sticking a cup and a thing of water. It wants to push it back up, except it's on a much bigger scale. So they'll rock it up and even damage the the inside of greenhouses and stuff like that. I've seen in Oklahoma, uh, <laughs> uh, especially the year we got all those floods. So as far as pumps on bigger scales, I like the Sparus pumps from... Uh, uh, Pentair, and then I also like for smaller scale Danner pumps, the Pond Master and their aquarium line are awesome. They're bulletproof. They're 110% thousand times better than any of the pumps that you can get from Aqua Hydro, whatever the fuck it is. Um, they're all garbage. These things are bulletproof. I've seen these things run for six, seven years on salt reef tanks and stuff like that. You don't, you know, you're not doing anything a tenth as bad in uh, in hydro. So. Uh, definitely are the pumps to go with, even if you're just do, utilizing some other water movement method for, for uh, uh, on your farm. The other thing I like about these Sparus pumps is you can adjust the flow rate on the fly. They have a huge flow rate range uh, and are very, very energy efficient. Uh, some of the other cool stuff that we're seeing a lot now on a commercial scale. So this is some of the early testing I did with Turtle Island Farms uh, just outside of Longmont. Uh, they're not open anymore, but there's a, uh, they worked with the group out in, um, uh, what's the name of the mountain, uh, Colorado, South Mountain or South River Aquaponics, South Mountain River Aquaponics, something like that. They're also doing large scale mushroom production, but um, you can see here below the blue part is a fish tank mounted in the ground. Uh, it's partially buried. Um, and then above that is the uh, racks for the mushrooms. We're utilizing this, the humidity from that. The CO2 builds up in here. And then we have an air vent uh, right above water level that sucks in the air and pumps it through airlines and drops CO2 directly onto the plants uh, in this particular facility. So it was a really cool setup. It was kind of a proof of concept on mushroom production. Uh, it takes about 55% of the square footage of canopy uh, in order to supply enough um, 
CO2 for uh, cannabis operations. So you have to have a combined total of uh, a nursery, you know, uh, incubation, mycelium incubation and fruiting stage uh, to be about 55% of uh, your canopy space for your cannabis uh, being your, yeah, I think you get what I'm trying to say. Uh, so I'm just trying to, to get through all this stuff. Um, all right. So um, again, and that is being used uh, currently by a commercial farm in Colorado on the Western slope. They're doing a whole cannabis operation aquaponics with a, a huge uh, attached mushroom greenhouse. Uh, again, South River, South Mountain, something like that. I don't remember their exact name. Uh, so equipment to avoid UV sterilizers. They actually will knock out the chelation on your manganese, your iron, uh, and your bore, you know, and cause all kinds of micronutrient issues. It'll it'll cause an issue with um, the plants will become phosphorus deficient because their their micronutrients are so knocked out. The iron and the uh, and the zinc and the manganese can really be screwed up, especially if you're using chelated versions. Uh, auto feeders they can tend to clog and mold. Uh, and can fail. Um, and then, you know, that's your main nutrient input, right? So why would you do that? Also, if I feed my fish, right, and they don't immediately explode to the surface like piranhas, um, I know something's wrong with the water chemistry. Maybe the heater's not working. Maybe a fish died and clogged the, the, the line. Uh, maybe somebody accidentally spilled something in the system. Uh, maybe there's a leak somewhere. Maybe there's a, some other problem that changed the water chemistry in a way that the fish don't like. Um, but that's a cue for me to now go inspect the, the place in kind of a different way. Uh, that's something that takes me 15 seconds, five to 15 seconds per tank per day to do. That is an immensely important data point uh, for me to leave to a robot that's not going to tell me what's going on. Um, it, it just the amount of labor saved to, you know, importance of data collected for those 15 seconds to me is just not at all worth it. Uh, MBBRs and ASTs, uh, again, redundant with media bed systems. There's no need for them. Uh, water spinners, uh, they were kind of a fad for a bit. Um, sulfur burners, again, um, make sure weed tastes like ashtrays or matches and uh, just isn't uh, isn't good for the fish either. Yucca extract kills saponin, uh, saponins, kills fish in seconds. In fact, uh, Native Americans in the um, uh, Northwest used to utilize and collect yucca sap or the roots, uh, the, the juice, and they'd put it in clay vessels and evaporate it down to make a concentrate and then they'd pour it in the rivers during the salmon runs and stuff like that. And then collect, have the village waiting half a mile or a mile downstream, just scooping up all the dead fish. And then, then they'd utilize that for their fish run so they didn't have to go catch all the fish. Um, but, you know, that's how toxic it is. Just a few drops and thousands of gallons will kill all the fish. So it's not a, not a good thing you want to screw with. And something you need to be careful with, with a lot of the organic soil mixes, they'll utilize it as a wetting agent. And it can, you know, if you get too much runoff, you'll kill your fish. I've seen people do it. Uh, I get a call about someone killing their system with saponins at least a few times a year uh, or an email. Uh, and then just because it's organic doesn't mean it's fish safe. There's lots of stuff that's organic that will kill your fish. Please do more research than just that uh, if we're trying to determine those types of things. Uh, and then Keegan water, we experimented with it uh, back way back in the day at the aquaponics source. It doesn't work any better or any worse than pH water controls. Uh, people spend lots of money on it. You don't need to spend that. Um, it's crazy to me. All right, so basic water chemistry for uh, aquaponics. You're looking for proper pH of 6.4 to 6.8 is critical for nutrient availability in aquaponics. 
pH up and pH down uh, options. Again, you're going to have a natural drop in pH because of nitrification. Other microbial processes, microbes pull carbonates out of the water in order to build more biomass, uh, as well as many other processes that they need different things that uh, you know utilize hydrogen and, and cause the pH to lower over time. Um, by having, uh, you're going to have to add uh, pH up over time. Alternating calcium carbonate with potassium silicate is the best uh, supplement for uh, plants in general and aquaponic systems. Um, iron, uh, if you want to go in a non-organic form, DTPA, DTPA really is the best. Uh, if you want to go more towards the organic side, uh, iron humate, iron citrate, or if you have to, iron sulfate um, uh, can be supplementation. Iron really is the first thing that will be depleted. Um, it gets highly oxidized in an aquatic solution. Um, so it is something that has to be supplemented, you know, once or twice a week, or you're not going to have very big plants. Uh, molybdenum and manganese are also utilized much more heavily by plants in aquaponics. Molybdenum in particular is utilized at a much higher rate. Uh, also, molybdenum is great because if you're trying to push them perps and you want your, your plants to be as um, photogenic and uh, with the best sales appeal, um, molybdenum really is the nutrient that you want. If you get a mild molybdenum toxicity, the plant will produce excess anthocyanin to bind up that molybdenum so it has less of an impact on its nitrogen uh, uptake and other negative impacts and, and, and produce that extra anthocyanin to bind up that molybdenum so that you'll end up with a you know, slight overexpression in, in that full dark purple uh, if you add a little bit of extra sodium molybdenate at the right time to your, your system or your plants. Um, your primary source of nitrogen, again, is nitrates. So the plants have to convert the nitrate back to ammonia, um, which, again, is more energy intensive on the plants. That makes things like zinc, um, manganese, and molybdenum much more important uh, to monitor than maybe a soil system would. Um, uh, it's uh, You kind of have a little bit, it's a little more critical, I guess, uh, easier to see in the data. Uh, and then overdosing zinc is the easiest way to kill your fish. Uh, I know in soil, people like to go crazy. Um, you can kill your fish real easy with it in, uh, in aquaponics. Uh, and then avoid using yucca extract. Again, uh, a few drops will kill all the fish in a 60,000 gallon system. If you're looking for great nutrient testing, um, I have the long format link down here in case the short URL breaks. Um, but here's the short URL um, for, a, I have a huge free database for everybody to use if you want to use it on um, uh, how to uh, test your water. So it has a RTs or ferments or whatever you want to test. Whole bunch of different aggregated tests um, you know how many are in a box uh, what the range is the price the manufacturer link to manufacturer and link to a retailer um, so if you guys want to test any of the stuff at home or you want to test some of your soil stuff go ahead you know there's a whole free database for you guys uh, to utilize for that how do you utilize aquaponics for your soil system so this is actually that church group i was talking about earlier we donated a whole bunch of tilapia uh, to them when they got too big um, again, can be really good PR for a cannabis firm, as well as a great way to just have great inroads with your community. You know, you don't have a ton of ways if you're not, you know, if you're just only growing cannabis, you don't have a ton of room to grow vegetables and stuff to, to have those extra inroads with the community. And it really help can get you into places like churches and other things that will give you educational opportunities to turn, you know, people onto cannabis that would never come into the cannabis community or didn't know the wonderful benefits that they could get from cannabis um you know or you know just didn't know anyone that would educate them or take the time so it can be a great way um extra fish parts can be great for making fi uh, fish amino acids um 
Uh, you can uh, partner up with local uh, aquaculture clubs or even uh, state production. I know there's one or two producers for a while uh, that were raising sturgeon, uh, and I forget what the other fish was, a type of panfish, uh, for re-release by the state, right? So they were the state was paying the fish feed for these plants, and the waste was being utilized to grow weed, right? So you can even get you know all different types of, of wonderful regenerative partnerships for restoring some of these local watersheds and things that have been you know wiped out because you have all these fish tanks you don't really care if the fish are coming in and out as long as they keep giving you waste and it can be again another great way to make inroads with regulators and other parts of the state that might kind of look at you sideways before you know you give them those types of opportunities um, you can set up your own aquaponic system you can set up an aquaculture pond or, or, or tank uh, to utilize to fertilize your, your living soil beds you know you could have one or two uh, aquaculture tanks with an offline filter that just separates the waste out and then utilize that as a regular compost tea base for your your field operations or your hugel beds you know it's wonderful for hugel beds and inoculating those as well uh, you know it's they, they work very synergistically like i said it's much more in line with with soil than it is hydro uh, in terms of biodiversity and uh, you know just the, the overall mineralization webs that are going on in those root zones are much more akin to to soil so here's kind of a quick rundown if you're looking to build your own system you're going to need a fish tank you're going to need a grow bed you're going to need a pump you're going to need some type of way to plummet you're going to need valves so that you can adjust the flow rates on whatever bed or loop siphon that you have you're going to need bulkheads so that you can plumb through the bottom of your grow beds you're going to need glue or uh, hoses in order to put your plumbing together you're going to need fish fish food a standard freshwater aquarium test kit some media some pots, some soil, some burlap, forgot to put that on there, uh, and some plants, uh, and then you're good to go. And you can see here, here's actually an uh, aquaponic cannabis class that we taught over at Dutch Bloom's farm, who has, in my opinion, probably the single nicest example, nicest example of a living soil and aquaponics hybrid farm uh, combined, utilizing kind of both food webs to maximize production on a, on a whole farm scale. Uh, and he'll be speaking both at the Aquaponic Association Conference next week uh, and at the uh, Virtual Aquaponic Cannabis Conference we'll talk about here at the end. Um, so here's another small system. Uh, this is one that we, I used to teach a little workshop on uh, in Colorado. Uh, it's a really simple system. You can build at Home Depot. It's just a tough tote with a concrete mixer, uh, a little bit of hose, uh, a trip to the hydro store and got us a bulkhead for a three quarter inch uh, line with a loop siphon on the back of this. That's just zip lined onto the, there's a little hole drilled in the top of this with the zip tie and uh, there's a loop siphon on it, right? So simple, simple and dirt cheap, right? So especially if you got kids or you just want to screw around with a plant or two, throw some goldfish on the bottom, make sure you have a water heater in there because it does get cold at night uh, and that can be harmful to the fish uh, and you're good to go. You know, you don't have to go crazy. You don't have to spend a lot of money. You might even have half the stuff laying around. This is another system that I, I built for, um, uh, again, working with education stuff for kiddos. Uh, the wood shop was building the, uh, the beds. Uh, here's the whole breakdown. Again, this is pre-virus uh, pricing, so uh, I'm sure some of this is almost comical right now. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly the two by fours, uh, 281 is, uh, I think we all wish we had that price back. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, this kind of gives you a build list and kind of, you know, they aren't that expensive. And this is a great educational one, but you could grow two plants up here and have your clones down here, or maybe even four small plants up here and have your clones down here and your fish down here. And it does not take a lot of space. This is a two by four bed. Um, so 
again, uh, and I have the a build file for this as well. And oh, did I include the picture? Shit. Anyways, I have a picture of that thing built and a bunch of them actually. I thought I included it. Oh well. Um, and then how can it uh, incorporate your soil operations? Again, great for nursery stock for large scale soil operations. Increased. Um, uh, Great for breeding because we tend to get because of that nitrates, um, we tend to have a little bit larger seeds and, and better seed production. Um, you also have faster flowering times. If I can veg plants and get them twice as big in the same amount of time, or just get them flipped faster uh, uh, by having the same amount of size plants in fast, shorter times uh, in veg, and then same thing with flower. If I can speed that up seven to fifteen percent on average, um, you know those really are metrics that you can start to turn into real numbers when you scale them up. And then fish waste is also great for soil amending. Like we talked about taking your leftovers from mineralization process that's left over, dehydrating it either in the sun or with a, a dewater and um, reselling that as well. It's often selling for, you know, 14 to 20 bucks a pound for dehydrated fish poop for soil amending uh, again, or utilize it on your own farm. Uh, can be great for, again, increasing seed production uh, and, um, uh, you know, you can use all your traditional inputs as well um, uh, as the base from the aquaponics water, compost tea, you can sell it um, and all that type of stuff as well. Uh, also working on uh, kind of in the same vein, uh, started working together with some other awesome people and you're going to see some other people talking about this soon. Um, the Open Nutrient Project, so this is kind of a, a coagulated database of um, a bunch of different nutrient inputs, so KNF, Judam, compost teas, ferments, compost, um, soil, uh, a whole bunch of different types of stuff uh, that people are working on in the liquid and solid organic space into one database so that we can start to figure out what the heck is good for what, and people can start to actually make real balanced decisions on this. There's a lot of stuff and uh, that's out there, but a lot of the stuff that's out there is not accurate at all. And when we actually go and test some of the actual teas and brews or how much is actually bioavailable, it's very different than a lot of data that's out there. So we have an aggregated database, has a lot of the, the testing stuff there for you and a lot of references to current databases that have been all compiled together into one place. Um, so that people can add that. So if you're testing your compost teas on a regular basis, you're testing your KNF put inputs, your DOM inputs for parts per million of nutrients or for any other metric that you feel is important, um, uh, please let us know and we'll, we'll get you some information. You can email us over at opennutrientproject at gmail.com. Um, it's not just myself. There's lots of different people that are working together on this project um, to try and move this forward because you have, uh, you you know, I think all of us that have been doing living soil and aquaponics and anything else that's very hyper microbially dependent it is realizing a hybrid of all these methods really is the thing that excels, not just taking one of the, one of the pieces of the pie, taking all of them, you know, and, and combining them and saying, look, I can get my potassium from this input and my nitrogen from this input and my magnesium from this input if I and have uh, all of those be organic or one's fermented and one's a tea and one's an extract. And if I add the microbes from this at the right time, I can really make this plant do whatever it is I'm trying to do. It, this kind of helps aggregate that stuff so that we can better understand it because the only way that we can actually get this type of stuff compiled is to work together in an open source way. Um, the idea is to have a regular either monthly or quarterly kind of released well-formatted document that kind of makes it easy to digest for people and then just get this out there into the world because uh, especially having been to Africa and back and how life-changing teaching a handful of people there uh, some KNF stuff was uh, for the people there and how much more like remember that a lot of the world 
has burnt out soil. Africa is a great example or anywhere that's been kind of hit with lots of NGOs for various reasons. They've poisoned the soil because they've been given fertilizer and fertilizer and fertilizer and pesticides and whatever, whatever, whatever. The ground's poisoned and it has to be remediated. And getting this type of information compiled and getting like the, the, the key plants in this region and the key plants in this region to build a fully rounded um, fermented or compost tea or whatever, or, or even compost um, uh, nutrient base uh, it, it is really going to help kind of fight back against um, a lot of these, you know, other things. You know, we all are against uh, things like Monsanto or things against things like uh, all the different you know, effed up stuff going on in the world right now. But this is something that we can all work together on and actually have something that's actionable to fight back against all the negative stuff that's happening in the agriculture space right now and the consolidation of genetics. Aggregating stuff like this and getting the data out so that anyone, be it in Africa, Asia, Europe, US, Canada, can utilize this and have this kind of hive database for this type of stuff that everyone can utilize in an easy formatted way is really going to be a good weapon to help fight against a lot of stuff. And I think... Uh, a lot of people are, are going to feel the same way and uh, have, have felt the same way, actually. And uh, uh, it's going to help us end a lot of the silly arguments that we ha often have, too, as far as, oh, well, this is good and this is bad and this does this. Well, actually, no, because, like, here's a good example of people utilizing it in a very uh, positive way. So, And this was really inspired by uh, some of the work that um, Quan Con Femme out of Vietnam is doing with, again, the long-term ferments, seeing how long-term uh, liquid IMO ferments after month three um, it really is where the nutrient PPMs really start to spike uh, and, and not beforehand, which I don't think anyone had any idea about beforehand until that. So this kind of helps us unlock some of those other ideas, learn what some of the other things going on is and pick some new directions. And then, hey, if, if everyone's already done something to death, put the stuff out and then we can all focus on other things to test for on our farms with, with the resources and money that we have available uh, for testing. So it, I think it, it long term is going to be a fun project to to help me and be part of. Something I'm really passionate about. And then uh, for those of you guys who don't know, I'm also hosting the second annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. On November 13th and 14th from 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and then we have over 30 speakers from Australia, Canada, Colombia, Switzerland, Sweden, South Africa, across the United States and Vietnam, uh, all coming to us uh, to talk about aquaponic or cannabis topics. We have a super cool range of speakers, uh, commercial producers, and all kinds of other stuff from around the world. Um, it's going to be a really, really cool time. Uh, and uh, 28 hours of education in one weekend. I think uh, everyone's brains are going to be quite full. Uh, and if you want more information about me, uh, you can find out my full format classes. We have over 700 slides and we are constantly adding new content and reference guides and things like that with Marty at apmjclass.com. My podcast is on everything that's out there uh, growing with fishes on every platform. And then we have a uh, format of nutrients for aquarium people trying to grow cannabis. Um, I just, people ask me over and over again. So we put together a little site with uh, Roger from True Aquaponics to make it easy for people. You just punch in what your gallons are and it kind of gives you some recommended uh, dosing for all that stuff. So it's a good tool and you can get, you know, your handheld if you want to through that or email me if you want to at Potent Ponics, if you want to tell me I'm wrong about something or something like that, uh, that's fine too. Um, but uh, check it out. Also have a Potent Ponics YouTube channel. Uh, we have over 600 hours of educational content over there. Unmute myself so I could say, wow, thank you.
<laughs> Thank you. That far uh, far exceeded any expectations I had, and you definitely you have a gift in many ways. You're to be able to put it down in the way that you did, to have the visual aids that you did, and present it the way that you did. That only comes from doing this many times, and that's something that I was getting from the different pictures and the different places you were talking about. You've gotten to go into the field and see a lot of this in practice yeah oh yeah yeah okay. i worked with most of the larger commercial producers that are currently on the market right now there's maybe two of them that i haven't worked with that are on any kind of large scale right now currently okay. and you're not uh exclusive to cannabis either you no, talk no, to I, cannabis is about 70 to 75 percent of my business but i also do specialty crops uh, you know, there's a lot of overlap. One of the other things that I, I often tell people when we're building this facility is that it's like, look, the bond never falls out of, of cannabis. Essential oil production is, is always really good, too. So there's a huge boom in not only um, Chinese medicinal herbs, but also plant imports. A lot of plant imports have stopped because of uh, the virus and all that stuff. So house plants have also really increased in price. So you can always quickly turn out clones on that and have a backup plan as far as, um, you know, monetizing the space and making sure at least you get your ROI back uh, uh, on the facility. So it kind of gives us people a backup plan or sometimes even hybridizing it. And we have some people doing hybridization of cucumbers uh, to grow stuff for making skin creams that they also combine with cannabis at, at one of the farms that we're working with. So there's a lot of also growing herbs and cannabis in the same thing. Uh, North Carolina um, is a friend of mine that's doing a large scale a hemp operation and lettuce production. And some of them are even in the same greenhouse space and it make great, makes for great pictures. But, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you, you don't have to do one or the other. You can always mix and match. That's one of the nice things about having the dual root zone pots is you can adjust it. If I want to do blueberries or raspberries and really acidic soil, I can do that. If I want to have a wicking bag and just have it wicking up and do root crops, I can do that. I can do you know, kind of whatever I want with the same space. And it gives you a lot of flexibility, especially as the markets bounce around a little bit, especially on the vegetable side. Uh, uh, the last couple of years have been really rough for people. And being able to quickly and, and rapidly reconfigure your farm production is uh, uh, very valuable. Yeah, to be able to do it rapidly. I mean, a lot of these times it takes years for yourself to get established doing that. But uh, yeah, we, de we definitely uh, took some notes and wrote down some questions tonight. So <laughs> we, got, we got a couple questions. I uh, wrote down some questions from chat and, you know, kind of back to that point, one of the things that I did notice or liked about that system is you were closing a lot of loops. Um, you know, your fertilizer comes from something that you're then able to, you know, sell as me or donate. And I love the getting involved with the community aspect. That's so big. We need to do that community outreach in this industry just because we're not bad people. Uh, we still get perceived that way sometimes. So when you extend that olive branch and you're like, hey, I have, you know, not a problem. I've got a solution. Let's work together and try to help each other. So that... oh, yeah, I've also I've, had, I've been blessed enough to work with lots of different aquaponic people that have had different ideas, but also doing it in North America and Canada and in the tropics, which are completely different. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, having that experience and learning all the different tips and tricks from all these different wonderful people I've had the chance to work with has also been a, a really great way. And then also seeing how a lot of different things overlap, you know. Uh, some of the traditional methods for fertilizing stuff in Jamaica isn't all that different from KNF. You know, doing, you know, nutrient ferments with fruit skins and lactobacillus and stuff like that. Not understanding the same equivalent, but in practice, it is very similar. So 
uh, with some of the methodology. So just seeing how some things kind of are very similar no matter where you go and some things are hyper local or hyper specialized or there's a certain pest there that you have to do at a certain time of year a certain way or, or whatever. One of the things I think was really cool uh, learning in my travels that a chance to experiment and shout out to Chris Trump for giving me this suggestion to try when I was over there. We had a lot of issues with grasshoppers eating the Cambrian layers uh, off the, about halfway up the cannabis plants in Zimbabwe. They were eating the stems off the plants, right? And the huh. middle. Uh, and w- what we ended up doing was we were ha- collected a whole bunch of the grasshoppers, uh, some of the workers did, and the kids, uh, other workers mainly, um, <laughs> uh, collected all of it. And um, uh, uh, we took that and mixed it with IMO. So when we made our regular IMO collections, we did 30%, about a third of the, of the rice we replaced with our target insect. So the grasshoppers, or if you don't have that, you can use insect frass. It works better okay. with your target insect, or at least a few of them to, to seed the whole thing. Um, but taking that, mixing that with the rice, and then making your standard IMO collections uh, with that, uh, and then collecting those microbes that will feed on those those insects and that chitin, the exoskeletons of those uh, those plants, or uh, I'm sorry, insects. Exactly. Sorry, I'm a bit tired today. Um, so, um, uh, it allows you to collect those local microbes that will feed upon the insects that are feeding on your plants, right? So if you think about it the same way that you do with your soil, that makes 100% sense. Why haven't we thought about this before? Um, so it works really well. So we sprayed that everywhere around the fields. And after about three or four days, we were finding tons of molded up uh, grasshoppers all over and, and completely stopped uh, you know, all the serious damage that we were having. Um, it, it, you still got a few spots here and there. Obviously, they're flying in and doing damage before they get hit. But um, it, it was a really great organic way to make our own pesticides in the middle of fucking nowhere, Zimbabwe. <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to get creative there. And one thing uh, I noticed on the slides, it said it was like eighteen percent of the normal water usage uh, when you go aquaponics. Uh, yeah. I imagine in areas of the world where water isn't as readily accessible that can make a huge difference for you as well. Oh yeah, big time. That's awesome. So we do, you know, if you have a couple of minutes uh, to hang out, uh, I've got sure. a couple of questions. Awesome, all right. I know the, the crew's getting rowdy back there. It looks like a fun crew, actually. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah okay. very fun crew. Nice. So, uh, anyways, yeah. Okay. Um, I'll just shoot. I'll just start at the top. And it, this one's for Do- Dirty Ho Gardens. I forget which question he had, but he requested that I say first time caller, long time listener. Um, and I don't know if this is his question or not, but from the top, how long uh, does fish poop need to decompose before you can use it? Like, so if you're just taking fish poop like from your aquarium, mm-hmm. I would brew it at least for 48 to 72 hours. Uh, if you want to be on the super safe side, uh, I would throw at least like a shot glass worth of labs in there um, just to help or even, you know, half a shot glass worth of labs into a five gallon buckets worth. I'm just thinking, you know, regular aquarium uh, cleaning um, in order to help break down anything that might be bad. Um, the nice thing about labs is it loves to feed on things like E. coli and salmonella and uh, septoria and root rot and things that'll fuck, you know, fuck up your plants. So um, it's great for just making sure your stuff is clean. You know, we've we've had tons of good luck with limiting pathogens. Uh, everything from septoria to, um, you know, E. coli. So, hmm. yeah, that's a scary one. Uh, um, and let's see here. I know you mentioned that tropical fish weren't ideal to use. Um, they are profitable in the end if you resell them. But if somebody had tropical fish, could they still use that poop too? 
Oh yeah, I just would avoid okay. really sensitive stuff. If you have lots of tiny tetras, uh, stingrays, freshwater stingrays, or um, uh, discus, you know, stuff that's just going to be super fragile, they're not going to take it too well. You know, so I'd stick to more commu- you know, ha- more hardier fish, um, uh, and you're going to have a, a much better result. It's not to say that you can't, but that really is going to be your best success, especially if you're you know less experienced. Yeah, right. And you said it was kind of like pH swings and stuff like that in the water. They're just too too temperamental. Why why go the hard route when you can pick something that's easier to work with? Okay. The biggest the biggest issue usually is the potassium. Uh, they end up getting excess blood in the potassium and, and have heart problems. That's the main issue. Huh. Okay. And then uh, uh, the issue you have with freshwater stingrays is they're not fish. They're they're rays, right? So and and sharks. They're they're cartilaginous fish. They're wholly different. They release urea. Um, they can also absorb a lot differently through their skin and through their gills. So it's chemistry-wise, they tend to die of toxicity of different things much easier. One of my favorite fish, though. <laughs> That's awesome. Do they do they need to be freshwater fish, or can it be saltwater fish? Uh, we have not tried to do any brackish water fish. I would imagine if you you could maybe pull it off with brackish water stuff if you wanted to do some type of crop like that. If you had brackish mycorrhizae and it would be very important that you did IMO collections in an area that already had kind of marshier stuff with plants growing that are mycorrhizally associated Um, they found that that introducing those mycorrhizal associated uh, salt tolerant mycorrhizae really helps increase plant tolerance to to salt and how about this is something that uh, anybody who's had a fish in the past has probably seen Somebody had asked, does the algae-rich tank water, green water, is that more beneficial or harmful? Is that something that you monitor? It's going to lock up all your phosphorus and reduce oxygen levels, and it's not good or desired. Um, We generally try to block most light uh, directly hitting the water outside of the fish tanks. Um, It's probably the only place we tolerate it. Um, So uh, everywhere else, it's either covered or the canopy of the plants. They're blocking it. You know, in some form or another, there's no direct light. Um, that's really what gets you. Uh, it's the single cellular algae that really bites you in the butt or the hair algae um, that can really clog your lines and your pumps and your everything, really. Um, but you don't want those. Uh, you want to avoid algae in particular. And, and it's just, again, it, it's locking up stuff that you want in your plants, not in the, in the system. It, it totally makes sense now that you mention it. Uh, this lake where, you know, I'd go camping as a kid and we'd fish there and it kept getting worse and worse and worse. It was the hydrofoil. Uh, it was stealing, robbing the lake, the water of oxygen. So now that you kind of mentioned the connection there, that one, that, that bing, bing, <laughs> that one yeah, makes any, the connection. Anytime you cover the surface like that, but a lot of those surface loving plants are great for fertilizer, uh, water hyacinth, water lettuce, all that stuff's great fertilizer. Uh, speaking of scale though, are people, are people doing this in like the 30,000 square foot range or what, what kind of is the diminishing returns or if there is one? So the diminishing returns would be, you know, I would say if you're really looking at anything over maybe four or five acres, then, you know, what is your budget, you know, that you're willing to spend on that and. It just kind of gets a lot to build out at once, especially right now with prices being sky high, and pretty right. much freaking everything, and lead times being insulting. That's a good way of putting of it. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of clients right now that are six, eight months behind because they're waiting on their greenhouses to be delivered, or their light depth systems, or their whatever to be delivered. 
Um, the only thing that is being moved around is the HDPE tanks because they're manufactured in the U.S. Those seem to get around. <laughs> it's the rest of the systems that have to wait on. That's kind of the start of it, uh, and, and you know, a lot of the plumbing, a lot of the plumbing that I saw was PVC. Um, you know, shoot, we could go and grab stuff at the hardware store. Is there anything special about the PVC used in this type of system? Sure. Uh, Sure. So that's a great question. So people often go, oh, well, PVC is toxic. PVC, if it's heated above 130, is toxic. Yes. Don't go heating your water. <laughs> that's a pretty easy one. Right. So also painting it so it doesn't break down from UV is another great way to help preserve it. Um, I have added actually a couple of customers when I worked at the aquaponics source have a couple of issues with um, water or mineral retention. You know, they were hyper accumulators of different minerals or had some type of liver kidney issues and the two options that we came up with for them was um you can use what they call um electric uh, electric production quality plastic or electric plastic something like that but it has a, a leach rate of like two parts per billion per year or something, okay. something oh, wow. like that it's about three Small. times the cost of regular pvc per foot but it, it you, uh, electrical grade that's what it is electrical grade okay. um, uh, you can utilize that if you are hyper, hyper paranoid about it. Um, the other thing you can do is glass systems. They make lots of glass systems. They're just kind of a bitch to put together, uh, and you can't lean on them or anything. You know, they're no. more fragile. But <laughs> yeah. uh, the two things that I've built that would be compliant with someone who's like super hyper on that end. But honestly, the leach rate on PVC is so low. Uh, you know, unless you're really doing crazy stuff to it, if you're running acids through it or something else nuts yeah you're gonna have problems but you're just doing you know those microbes and stuff aren't really they're not tearing your pipes up it's required in potable water pretty much worldwide it's, it's not anything dangerous and it kind of gets a weird bad rap right and th this will probably vary by which species of fish you have in there um but what is the typical like temperature range i mean obviously they're sure. not going to be in frozen water but you also said not 130 degrees either Sure. You want to, uh, the fish tank water anywhere from 64 to 72 degrees. Uh, we even run as high as 74 in the winter. You know, if I'm running a greenhouse, like I showed you the, the demonstration one we had in Colorado, um, we'll run that 74 in the winter. If it's super cold out and I have some kind of power failure, the heat coming off of that gets me at least 12 to 14 hours just for oh, wow. stored heat energy in there because we lose maybe yeah. 0.3 yeah. degrees per hour. Uh, in there 0.2 degrees per hour. So it gives me a plenty of time to fix or unfuck whatever just broke, right? Like uh, the more time <laughs> yeah, I have to, to buy myself, the better. <laughs> so uh, we had the whole greenhouse blow open in a real bad windstorm and the heat bubble from all the water kept all the plants from frosting. There was no frost burn or anything that the heat off of it just protected all the plants and, and, and kept them from getting hurt. So it was really good. Yeah, and it's it's nice that you have that built in. I know that's kind of one of the the natural techniques for trying to keep some heat in in the evening in those outdoor environments. But yeah, with you, with that big of a surface area, you can utilize most freshwater fish between um, you know in that temperature range and then the pH range. You know in the sixes, right? So six point four to seven is is the ideal. Six point six being the sweet spot um, uh, if you're aiming for you know proper pH. And how, how often are you testing the water for pH or micronutrients or something that might be bad in there? Sure. So on the commercial operations, we're testing every two weeks just because of profitability. Um, most, most of the time, though, people are doing once a month. I actually have a, 
uh, not to plug it, but I actually do run a, a full commercial testing company as well uh, through True Aquaponics. You can hit the commercial button. Uh, and we actually have quite a few different large scale commercial uh, aquaponic producers where uh, they send out their water samples, they send me the results, and then we send them custom organic or non-organic formulated nutrient solutions that are fish safe. Um, that basically you tear it open, pour it in and forget it. You know, it basically replaces all the headache of doing it. Because I'll be honest with you, I've been in the aquaponics industry now for a long time. The, the lack of education around nutrient supplementation and lack of education around proper pest management is the, the number one and two, uh, two of the biggest reasons people fail. The other biggest one that people fail with aquaponic operations, especially vegetable operations, is they don't do proper research on the market where they're growing. So they, they'll, they'll build a wonderful, great greenhouse operation, 12,000 square feet, and they'll grow killer lettuce. But they're in an area that is traditionally grown lettuce at you know, bottom dollar prices and so are all their neighbors, right? Don't grow what your neighbors are growing. Grow literally anything but what's locally grown in your area and you'll make more money, right? Like So uh, that's, that's some of the stuff where people aren't doing the market research and kind of being really good farmers, but not hitting the mark in terms of sales. And, and I think that's the number one reason why people fail in aquaponics is not putting them in the right place and not doing the right research on what they should be growing. Yeah, doing doing growing off season is always a great thing, especially if you're on the small scale and you're around a whole bunch of restaurants. Grow off season, do yourself a favor. I think you're going to see a lot of seed producers partnering up with people in the southern hemisphere because you can take whatever the flavor of the month is from this year and bulk it out on the off season and bring it back in the spring. You know, global, yeah, global global scale there. You mentioned you mentioned uh, kind of the nutrients. It was awesome. Uh, we saw the slide of just fish shit uh the worm castings and then a little bit extra we had a question here um so you you kind of answered it but it says how much how much nutrients need to be supplemented sure so on average compared to drain to waste we're averaging anywhere from eight percent to about 20 percent, depending on cultivar most of them are around that 10 to 12 percent maybe 14 percent uh, and it's mostly iron manganese molybdenum potassium uh, that's it's mostly those th couple because they get burned through you know the plants just chew through them um, and then the iron really is the thing that costs us the most accumulated iron is just not cheap no what with the in the oxygen levels in the water I, I just there's no way around it you, you can get humic chelated iron but it's even more expensive so <laughs> <laughs> even more <laughs> even more so um Let's see here. We had a question from Green's Goddess here, and I and I don't really know. Well, actually, yeah, with the dual root zone, you'd probably be using it. Uh, but anaerobic versus aerobic bacteria. Sure. So actually, let me pull up the one slide again. Yeah. Well, we That's can just leave question. that up here. Um, so, on that note, because it's a great question, and I had a thing in there to talk about it, and I forgot to. Oh yeah, no worries. I glad I wrote that one down, and I won't show you how I spelled aerobic here, but I knew what I meant. <laughs> That's all right. The, uh, anyways, I've I've had some pretty comical misspellings. Like English grammar. When I, yeah, when I when I'm writing fast, grammar. sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm writing fast. I'm like, eh, whatever. Call it good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's see here. If you want to share again, I'll add that yeah, up. Yeah. As a screen. All right. Okay. I see it popping up. So, Wait, so in this one, we have three 800 gallon aerobic mineralization tanks and three 1,000 gallon anaerobic tanks down here where we can do fermented versions of the 
basically for a lack of oxygen versions of the uh, fish waste for different periods of time. It's something we're still experimenting with and getting the timing down, but it, it is something that we, we do do and uh, as part of a two-part. Uh, if you really want to look into the this as a in, in hyper fine-tuned stuff with tons of white paper documentation, um, look up the work of Nick Sabadov. He's doing a ton of the, the dual stage stuff and, and we're working on this because this is a very large farm we're building out in Georgia. Um, we're building that into this this operation. But we absolutely use, utilize tons of ferments, labs, um, plant ferments, and, and other things as well, uh, all quite a bit um, uh, on a regular basis and with no issues of the fish. In fact, there, there's quite a bit of things that people traditionally um, associate as being negative, things like omocytes, uh, that actually play beneficial roles in the, in the food web and aquatics. So um, there, there's quite a few things that, you know, you kind of have to think about things a little bit differently just because something that works a certain way in soil doesn't mean it always works that way or that it's going to work that way in an aquatic environment. So something else to kind of take away from this uh, in terms of the microbes. Yeah, it's important. We can, okay, we got that up. Um, just have kind of one more, one more question from the chat. Then I have just kind of a few random musings that I wrote down. Like, I found two frogs in my grow before. <laughs> random inside. I, I've got long hair. Sometimes it accumulates on the floor. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen, dude, okay, so, I'm working on growing my hair long, <laughs> I just saw this, like, little ball of hair move across my floor, and I looked a little closer, I'm like, there's a little frog in that thing, so, yeah, I figured it was warm, but that's, if that's a preview of the uh, random musings I have written down for you, um, <laughs> one, one more uh, viewer question, though, it was, and this, might be really hard to answer uh how many guppies do you fit in a 35 gallon tank is there some sort of volume formula sure or generally you want about an inch of fish per gallon of of tank but with guppies they're a lot smaller so you can get away with maybe five four or five inches um again if you ask someone in the aquarium world they'll be like i'm you know fish hitler or whatever for telling you to put that many fish into a a fish tank, but you can overstock the living crap out of them as long as you have those those plants um, uh, exporting that nitrogen. The number reason why those fish die is because that nitrogen builds up, right? That nitrate causes brown blood disease uh, and then kills them that way. That's that's how they die of the nitrogen, or one of them anyways. Um, so uh, that's what you have to worry about with, with that. So if you have the plants constantly exporting that nitrogen and at the right balanced ratio, obviously, um, you never have to do a water change, other than you know, maybe once a year doing a 5% just to make sure you don't have any other types of trace mineral buildup or something like that. But you don't really have to do much of anything other than like, you know, a tiny little bit here and there. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, one, one thing, too, you mentioned in, in the slides, um, you had worked with NASA on microbial studies. Have you looked at... Um, I think it was probably six months to maybe a year ago, but they put out like the composition of Martian soil and the atmospheric conditions. They're looking for people to grow there. So you, you're nodding already. So you oh, know yeah, about yeah. this? I definitely joked about trying to get in on that contest. Uh, you had to send in, I forget what the date was, um, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. We actually, uh, we just had them come sample the farm. We weren't working directly with them. They just came to our farm and sampled our stuff, but it was it was still really neat to, to learn that like, you know, we see in so many different soil food webs that there's so much overlap with the different, um, uh, you know, microbiomes and, and 
you know, different microbes playing similar roles in, in different uh, food webs, no matter where they are. In aquatics, with it being just all over the board, you know, in some some mineralization processes taking one or two microbes, other one taking five to eight for the same mineralization process, and and you know, just all these different wild things that they learned from it, it was super, super, super cool. I like I like those little uh, things that you never thought you'd think of, and then all of a sudden the question is posed to you. You're like, with the data, too, to work with, you know? Here's the tools. Who the hell would have thought that fermented milk would be the key to food safety in aquaponics? Like, that just sounds crazy on the surface, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Although I will give a shout-out to cheese. Um, yeah, no. What, what other thing? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, what, one other thing too, that you talked about the open nutrient project. I love the idea of that because that's been one curiosity I've had with a lot of JDOM or KNF recipes is just ratios and efficacy. How, how does it determined and determined by source? So with that, I know that you are open sourcing a lot of this information on exactly that. What, what type of standards or metrics do people have? Uh, just as a bad example, uh, THC testing, there is no standard right now. So you're gonna get different numbers from the same plant from different people. So how, how are you guys gonna try to avoid that? Sure, so most of the stuff we're doing right now is strictly around um, parts per million of nutrients and trying to basically give people the tools so that they can min max and balance their soil mixes. Um, and, and, and around that is kind of the focus currently, but the idea is to expand upon that and add other layers onto it later on um, as it seems fit. And a lot of those things are, are already done. You know, there's a, all the water testing stuff is already there and, and, you know, that's been around for a long time. Soil testing has been around for a long time. So we're not, none of that testing side needs to be new or developed in any way. It's just documenting the stuff and saying, hey, I took this plant and fermented it for this time. And here's the parts from million that came out the end. And, that, and trying to document that stuff so that people can start brewing their own batches and having that type of information is going to be really important going into the future. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh... I, I think about how people, like, you know, people in Zimbabwe, if they could go over to the forest and take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and ferment it, and then put it on their plants, they don't need to go rely on... Uh, um, what's Monsanto's name over there now? Bear? No. Um, someone in chat will, will say it. Anyways, uh, they have a, a different name. Uh, I can't think of the name of it now. They have the sign all over Harare at, at all the agriculture places. And I can't remember the name of it. Anyways, I'll think of it. Uh, 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 so Syngenta. Syngenta. Okay. okay. Syngenta now, is their new brand. Um, I am but familiar yeah, with if, the name. If we, can, if we can cut off their their ability to manipulate these farmers around the world, then we win. And I think that's kind of a goal that we can all get behind and something that like, hey, maybe before we all felt like we didn't have the power to do that. But if we all work together, we do. We can build weapons to fight back against the bullshit that's going on. And it gives us actionable stuff. I think a lot of us get kind of frustrated, especially with all of us being locked in our houses and everything in the last year or two, kind of feeling kind of helpless. And I think this is something that we can actually do work together towards and actually have something that we can do something about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And food security, too, particularly in that side of the world. Um, one of my sustainable uh, ag professors was from over there. And he, you know, just the stories that he had is interesting, but things that we take for granted, it's like food security, water security. Those are the things that tribes go to war for. 
Um, we don't necessarily have that problem until it's, you know, the last freaking hostess donut in Walmart. It doesn't happen that often. But like you're saying, if, if we can walk over to the forest and get these materials to grow the food, to have food security, to prosper as a community and tribes and elsewhere, it, it just reaches out. And yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good that comes from knowing something not so simple, but something as basic, you know. So I, I enjoy that. Um, man. This is this has been a really really fun night for me, Potemponics. Uh, I am so glad this is recorded. I know I can and will go back to this again. I, I'm a sucker for a slideshow, and that was like you know the home run over the green monster in Boston. I'm not a sports fan, but I know that much. The big tall wall out in Boston, um, dude. Thank you uh, for coming through. And please, let's, uh, you know, one more time, I want to, if you have that slide, if you could still pull that slide back up um, with your contact information and also a little bit more information about the event, I believe it was November 13th and 14th on your uh, YouTube channel, the second annual aquaponics uh, conference. A lot of great people uh coming in there and ah there's peter i knew he would know he said the green monster or i'll say the green monster the green monster yeah, so. we have, uh, uh, november 13th and 14th 10 a.m or 9 8 a.m to 10 p.m uh, <laughs> say it backwards twice in a row um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we have myself sweetwater from south africa symbiosid the only current uh commercial aquaponic cannabis producer in switzerland uh, Aquila Toss from Canada, Dragonfly Earth Medicine, who I don't think needs any introduction. I think y'all kind of the king and queen of the organic world. Um, uh, thumb, thumb, or gen ooh, thumb Genetics out of Michigan, Matthew Gates, uh, IPM guy, uh, Caleb from Copy Left, Chris Trump. We have a co commercial cultivation panel with commercial people from around the industry. Dr. Wilson Leonard from Australia, uh, Dylan McAmmon from Canada, Wendy Kornberg, um, uh, KNF uh, extraordinaire, uh, Quanok Femme from Vietnam, who's doing, in my opinion, some of the coolest, most groundbreaking work uh, currently in the KNF space with interesting ferments and doing heavy documentation on, on parts from million and everything else. Um, Breeder Steve, um, Angela Tenenbrock, who's a food safety expert, uh, Victor Labanov, who's a microbial researcher from Sweden, uh, Joe Pate, who's an aquaponics expert. Um, Tanner Stewart from Canada, Dutch Blooms from Washington, probably has one of the nicest living flail aquaponic farms uh, combined out there. Uh, Kevin McKernan, geneticist, uh, really cool guy. Um, Rob Nash of Austin Aquaponics, been growing hemp in, uh, in Texas for three years. Uh, Clackamas Coot, I uh, think you all know who he is. Um, uh, Dr. Robert Faust, uh, humic acid and fulvic acid expert. Murray Holland from Australia. We have a homegrown panel with surprise uh, uh, moderator, a craft-grown panel with a different surprise moderator, and then Marty Waddell to close us out. Um, so it's going to be a really good uh, good time and a ton of education. And all for free on YouTube. And you can watch it on any device that supports YouTube. Uh, and then also my, uh, my classes. We have full-format classes if you want to take a constantly updated commercial-scale class with just you know over 100 hours of info on there now. Um, we have the podcast uh, nutrient website if you need it to kind of make your life simple. I'm not going to push the newts, but if you're frustrated and want the answer, 
you have it now because I'm tired of answering that email. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, uh, we have uh, my email here if you want to reach out. And then Growing With Fishes podcast on your favorite app. We have over 600 hours of podcasts, uh, interviews with many different awesome people uh, over the last five and a half years. Um, so definitely check that out. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. And one thing I always like to ask guests before we go, and sometimes the answer is no, but was there anything that you wanted to talk about tonight that I didn't ask you or something that you want to shout out or get out there? Um, no, just uh, nothing I can think of. Sorry. <laughs> O'Doyle rules now, right? Okay. <laughs> Be excellent to each other. Yes, brother. There we go. Well, shoot. All right, guys, everybody, uh, we see, we've got your Instagram up on the screen right now. Um, a little house cleaning. I guess I could do that before we go. Um, tomorrow we are back on FCP main channel in the morning, 10 a.m. on the West Coast. Uh, Brian and Layton doing Living Soil Show. Uh, they will be on then. And coming back here... 3 p.m. on the West Coast tomorrow to FCP02. We've got the return of Catachronic. Woo! So bring your underwear and flip them at the stage. I don't know. It's something. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything better to say there. But yeah, they're a rocking good time. So uh, midday, tune in, rock out with us. Catachronic, FCP02 tomorrow, 3 p.m. on the West Coast. Uh, so cool. With that, uh, Potent Ponics. Steve, my friend, thank you so much for uh, all your effort tonight. That was an awesome one. Appreciate it. Thanks for having uh, me, and thanks for giving me the ability to educate everybody a little bit on aquaponics. I think a lot of people didn't re don't really realize how it is way more similar to soil than anything else, uh, especially in how it works and, and how the plants respond and how it benefits plants. You know, it really is, you know, uh, living soil and aquaponics really are kind of the, the two best methods to grow aquaponics or any type of cannabis plant in terms of, chemo of our expression we've seen that mm -hmm. that dual root zone has me has my wheel spinning so yes i'm going back to that slide here probably very shortly uh, well, great. Thank you. yeah no problem with that we'll catch you guys later peace, peace. out all right